0: I killed the last honorable man 15 years ago, since then. You've seen his porch from downstairs?
1: Mm-hmm. Is your mouth all glued up with honey juice? I asked you a question.
0: I said I seen it, sir.
1: <laughs> oh, you got a murderous rage in you, and I like it. Oh, it's life. Boiling up inside of you It's good.
0: Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the film collaborations between Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio.
2: Show me all the blue, show me all the blue
0: Join Garrett. You don't say that name. Matt. I haven't slept for fucking weeks. And the returning Michael Garnieri, you A rather high-strung chap. As they look at the cinematic feats of the combined talents from the famed director and big star. We're taking home cold hard cash via
1: commission, motherfucker.
0: All coming up only on
2: Percolated Media. This is bad for everybody. What's next, dead politicians? Killers of the Flower Moon, released October 20th, 2023. The budget, $200 million. Box office, $86 million thus far and uh it was directed
3: by let me just check the notes here on this one Martin Scorsese and uh welcome back everyone it has been a while with this series hasn't it we concluded it let's see we did wolf of wall no was it wolf of wall street was the last one we did yeah god damn so it's been 10 years, been 10 years. between films so wolf of wall street we did last year around this time actually and here we are I got to say boys, I didn't think we would ever see the light of this movie would see the light of day. All we saw was that picture of that dinner scene. For the for the longest time that was all we saw. And I was questioning Matt. I said, "Should we even do this series because I don't even know if this damn thing's going to come out." <laughs> sure enough, here we are and oh boy, do we have a ton to discuss. We do. Uh this was a movie where you know, Scorsese,
2: he's one of those guys who like there's always three or four different things that are sort of vaguely attached to him at any one time. The he's gonna do like the the Teddy Roosevelt movie, the Jerry Garcia movie with Jonah Hill, though that one might still becoming the future although actually I suspect probably not and this one had been I think first kind of announced all the way back in 2017 so really a long time ago and before even Scorsese was attached it was uh, J.J. Abrams who was uh, attached to her which is an insane thought and you know he's been kind of vaguely attached to this movie for about six years now and it's you know you kept hearing all these announcements of like DiCaprio's gonna be in it and De Niro's gonna be in it and this and that and there was some debate over oh who's gonna play play which role It's based on a true story like what aspects of the story are going to be highlighted they were all ready to go in 2020 and then the world ended and then the world came back and then robert de broke his foot and it's like he was in hmm. two movie or he was cast in two different movies that he had to drop out of to do this one both of those movies came out a year ago and two years ago so it, 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 we thought this was going to come out last year my brother got me the book for christmas i think two years ago or no he got it for my something he my, my brother got the book for me as a gift like two years ago because he's like oh the movie's gonna come out any day now so you'll you'll get to enjoy the book and then read and enjoy the movie and uh instead here we are quite far into the thing it's one of those modern scorsese films that takes a very long time to edit he be, these days tends to go about three to four years between films which mm-hmm. is slow is like, a, is like a judgmental word, but like, you know, it, it's a very studied pace. He's not like at a Ridley Scott pace where he's turning around and he, he, he wakes up and there's a movie there, you know.
3: Before we get into this particular movie, let's recap if people have not listened to our previous shows. Now, Matt, you are a big Scorsese fan, correct?
4: Uh, well, to quote this movie, the third act, it's a fair statement, yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was... Five for five on the movies we reviewed. I didn't give any of them a negative review. I definitely like one above the rest, tried and true. But yeah, this is something that I was eagerly anticipating. Although I must say I have not read the book. But this production, when I heard this movie was announced way back when, I sort of put this in the same camp as like when Tarantino says he's going to make a new movie. I'll believe it when I see it. Because it was so discussed in Scorsese's pantheon. But the thing that convinced me was when The Irishman came out, and I said, okay, he talked about that movie for God knows how long, considerably longer than this one. And mm-hmm. the word considerably longer is going to apply to a lot of the discussion surrounding this movie. So don't be don't surprised if you hear that statement. But once that movie came out and it was what it was, I was like, okay, if that movie was able to crawl out of the depths of development hell like Boba Fett climbing out of the Sarlacc pit, there is a very good chance that Killers of the Flower Moon will actually see the light of day. I had no idea J.J. Abrams was attached. That's means to me. I don't know how you go from J.J. Abrams to Martin Scorsese. You get two two short guys wearing glasses. I I guess they have a type, but I was excited to see this, but I didn't know if I would have a theatrical experience because my understanding when this was first announced was it was going to be strictly an Apple TV release that, for my knowledge, did not have theatrical distribution.
3: Mike, what about you? I mean, you gave a 10 out of 10 to Wolf of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you gave any other 10s in that entire retrospective, but you were the champion. You were the Scorsese DiCaprio champion. Yes,
2: yes, yes, yes. So I've been very excited for this one. I will say that, like, from the beginning, I was interested in – what exactly is it that's sort of drawing Scorsese to this story? Because the last few movies that he's made, I mean, The Irishman, The Appeal is obvious it's him returning to the this is mafia world and returning with de niro and pesci and doing it from like an, an older perspective and then silence it's the whole like catholic kind of guilt and martyrdom type. as the which is another one of his brands wolf of wall street is the good fellas kind of like live fast and don't die possibly with regrets or not at all type lifestyle movie you know so, like, his last few movies have been very much, like, you see what the appeal is to him. This one was kind of interesting from the beginning because he's never done the Western before, you know, and this is kind mm-hmm. of a Western, kind of on that borderline between the Old West and, and and the modern West. But it's, yeah, very much a Western, and I think that that is kind of what would be the appeal of it to him. You know, there was a video, an interview of him talking, this was years and years ago, but it's him talking about doing The Gangs of New York, and that's a movie where he used CGI for the first time to... Add on to the sets and the practical effects of, of recreating 1860s New York. And he talked about in the interview how one of the digital effects artists came to him and was like, okay, so what do you want the sky to look like in this shot? We're creating a CGI sky for this. What do you want it to look like? And he was talking about how he was, like, kind of taken aback by the question for a second. Because he was like, uh, I don't know, uh, a nice guy. Being from New York, he doesn't think about the sky in terms of this big overarching thing that looms over everything. Because it's filled with skyscrapers, so it looks different. And he talked about, like, you know, Spielberg grew up in Arizona. Different thing. He thinks about the sky a lot, thinks about the horizon a lot. I don't. And so (laughs) this is kind of the first time that he's doing this kind of movie, really, where it's outdoors and it's got the the wilderness aspect of it. And so I think that's probably what was drawing him to it. But I was also kind of a little bit like, not, I wouldn't say concerned, but I was like a little bit old white guy making a movie about this horrible atrocity that was done to indigenous people here in the United States. And that automatically comes with some, how is this gonna work out? You know, even if the intentions are good, is it gonna be just executed kind of wrongly or like the priorities are gonna be wrong and everything like that? And there's been a lot of discussion with a lot of different judgments from different people from all kinds of different backgrounds about where this movie goes with it. This movie, this is a movie that they said they completely changed the way that The narrative was going to go in the pre-production process. They had one vision of what it was going to be. And then they spoke to the Osage people in Oklahoma. And then they had a completely different notion of
3: what it was going to be. And they completely rewrote the script. DiCaprio was going to play the detective, right? And then that's also why they completely rewrote the entire
2: thing. Yep, exactly right. And so this is a movie where it's clear that a lot of thought and consideration has been put into it. And I was really just curious to see how it would play out. And it's interesting that the response so far in general to it has been pretty overwhelmingly positive, but it's interesting that there's certain aspects of it that we'll get into that I've noticed have been very divisive. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get, we'll get into some of
3: those. Definitely. And just to speak from my point of view on this, I've been the grouse on this retrospective. I was an outspoken, I shouldn't say non-fan of Scorsese. I respect what the man does filmmaking wise. And I said on those podcasts that I respect him as a filmmaker, but at the same time, he doesn't make movies about people that I like. And that was a little bit of a concern to me. But if you go back to the Aviator podcast, that was pretty much two hours of me and Mike fighting, <laughs> and Matt just sitting back with his arms crossed, just watching. Yeah, us. I
1: look like
4: I look like <laughs> Brendan Fraser in this movie. I just
3: yeah. I, I, oh God, I, things to say.
4: Sat there, I'm
3: holding back. I sat there. I, yeah. I said a
4: couple things. I think I called one of you a dumb boy because
3: I just. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that oh, okay. is, and I and I love Mike, dude. I really do. I think uh, Mike, you're a tremendous, dude. But man, we really went at it during that podcast. And so I have been the grouse on this, and I didn't give as high scores to things that you guys did. You guys loved Wolf of Wall Street. I didn't think it was that great. Again, there was nobody I liked in that movie. So when this was coming out, I was a little hesitant for the reasons you just outlined, Mike. But when the trailer started coming out, my fiance, who is part Indian herself, and has been really really interested in that in her heritage of late she's bought books on it she has taken classes on the languages she is heavy into it and she looked at that she says i really want to see that and of course you know we were going to cover it so i was going to see it anyway but the fact that it garnered her interest is what kind of got mine and i saw this a few days after it came out i'm off wednesdays and thursdays so we saw it on a wednesday the wednesday after it came out but there were still about a dozen people in that theater and there are things that happened during that screening i will get into as we talk but it was Quite an experience going to see this movie because I went in completely cold. The only background I had on it was my mom, of all people, read the book. And she said if they do the book anywhere near the way it's been written, then they would have made a tremendous movie. And Jen, my fiance, will love it. And so it kind of got under my curiosity, and I didn't look at any interviews or anything. I didn't look at any reviews going into this. And man, going into this movie cold, not knowing what I was getting into, I will say my ignorance. I knew this was based on a true story. I didn't know where this was going to go. And my God, you know, without giving my thoughts out, it's quite a powerful three-and-a-half-hour experience. Matt, how was your screening? I had a solo screening. I was by myself, and I was in the theater exclusively by myself.
4: I I don't even think the projectionist stuck around, because I went... I went I at, love an o- at an 8 o'clock showing. <laughs> yeah. 8 o'clock at night because it's a li- because of the runtime of this, there's only so many slots you can allot, especially if you're only running it on one screen. So, because I saw it when I did, I didn't get out till close to midnight because even though this movie's three and a half hours, they still put fucking trailers in front of it. <laughs> just, yeah. just to twist your ass in that seat just a little bit more. But. <sighs> I'll, I'll say this. I'm Much like Garrett, I went into this movie knowing next to nothing. As I said, I haven't read the book. I didn't learn much about what the book was until after I saw the movie, and I realized that the perspective is totally different among other things. My trepidation, and I say this with all due respect, is I don't know if this is just because I'm getting older and, and my patience is wearing off or I'm just an asshole. I mean, that last one's probably true. But three and a half hours is asking a lot. And as much as I appreciate what the man does, given his age as well, I mean, the man is 80 years old at this point, I was worried that the movie was not going to justify the run time. And that, in three and a half hours, seldom movies in, exi- in the history of cinema have justified being three and a half hours. Look at something like Lord of the Rings Return of the King. What's the biggest complaint you hear about that movie, even though it won Best Picture? It took forever to end. And that's populist cinema. Not even talking about niched, like, you know, cinephile stuff like, uh, like a Lawrence of Arabia, which is, it's an epic in and of itself. So I I needed to put myself in the mindset that I am watching a three and a half hour movie and I need to give it my exclusive mental acumen. But I was worried that is there going to be a point where I just am staring at the wall or fishing for things in the movie that are superfluous because the narrative is not compelling
2: me. Interesting. Mike, how was your screening? Uh, it was pretty uneventful. I I went on a Tuesday, so I went for the half price ticket because uh-huh. fiscally responsible. Um, and uh, it was it was uh, it was pretty well attended. This was uh, I wanted to see it. It's a little thing. I went I went recently. Me and my girlfriend went to New York City, little city where a little fellow named Martin Scorsese hails from. That's not why we went, but we were there, and uh, we happened to be in Little Italy. We met somebody for lunch, and we were going to go see this. We wanted to see it at a theater, an old. An old 1920s movie theater in New York called the Angelic, And guess who was big dumbass and went, walked us to the wrong theater? It was me. So, we did enjoy a nice afternoon. There's two Angelicas that are too close to each other. I don't know why they're, like, in, like, adjoining neighborhoods. They should be... Whatever, I'm not going to get into it, but... <laughs> So you go, you walk to one and could, uh, whatever. So uh, enjoyed a good time in, in Scorsese's old stomping ground in, in Little Italy, which essentially consists of one block at this point, but, uh, that's, that's the story from the other day. But then saw it when I got p- back here to Louisville. Pretty n- normal, uh, screening. I was really worried there was going to be some sort of disaster because I'm to see it at a multiplex and those can be a little, the staff can be sometimes, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just a little, uh, uh, uh unconcerned, um, I think sometimes about what mm. your experience is. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, yes. But no, went off without a hitch, and uh, I've been w- aching to talk about it just in general, and I knew that we were going to do this episode, and so I've been kind of holding back some of my, like, thoughts about it in general from, like, my social media to uh, wait until uh, this
3: episode so that uh, these can be uh, revealed to the world. But you can't help yourself, because you were posting about it Okay, today. but a few
2: things, a few things. They were pretty light, and they were, like, pretty, like, <laughs> yeah. they were not getting into my full opinion on it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
3: And there's a lot to talk about, yeah, so, yeah. By the way, we didn't start with a scene. Did you guys get Martin Scorsese thanking you for going to the movies to see this and the passion that it took to do yes. it? Yeah, so did I. I appreciate it. I did too, actually. I, I keep. The, I hope they keep doing those things. I, I like these better than the ungenuine Nicole Kidman. <coughs> so glad you're at the movies. Like, no. <laughs> uh, you we know, we got it with the Jurassic Exorcist.
2: World, and it's such a great experience that everybody loves. It changes your life. It transforms
3: you. <laughs> I got to say, I did the same thing. I really, really bit my tongue when I walked out of that theater. I had so many thoughts. We got home. And by the way. Matt, you had a point. This is three and a half hours. Now, my poor fiance gets <laughs> off work at like 5.30, 6 o'clock. And so I got a 7.30 show. And we got home at like 11.30. It was madness. It's like, goddamn, like these fucking three and a half hour movies are going to kill us. But uh, yeah, I did the same thing. I got home. I typed some stuff down on my iPad. And uh, I had some thoughts. And <laughs> I, I bit my tongue. I didn't put one thing on social media about this. I was ready to talk about it. I also have not said anything. No, you have not. You've been good about this.
4: Yeah, normally I'm I'm the one who tends to slip up, especially if it's a movie I have a very strong
2: reaction to. All
3: right. So, Mike, go ahead. Get into the plot, sir. Okay,
2: so we begin with Ceremony of the Osage Tribe in Oklahoma uh, sometime around the turn of the century, and they discuss the changing of history and as their future generations are going to become sort of assimilated against their will into white society, and on their land, suddenly, what do they see? Oil gushing from the ground, burning out in a slow-motion shot to this really great, I, I think at least, Robbie Robertson, the late Robbie Robertson of the band, score, which kind of combines kind of a indigenous sort of feeling to it, but also with, like, kind of a blues rock, kind of more modernish rhythm to it. Really kind of, I think, gets the movie off to a good start with this great image where we see... This tribe that I think in our imagination, in our, you know, in our, in our uh, white American sort of imagination, we sort of associate with the past, and then we have oil, which is something we associate sort of with the modern world, and it, it, as one of the things that animates modern life. And we see these kind of things combining, and then this music comes in, and we have this great little fake newsreel. I think I think it mixes probably some real footage, but also a lot of new footage. Newsreel of the Osage tribe now are some of the richest people in the world because oil is on their reservation. So now they've inherited all this oil that. Has made them really wealthy. And so we see all these great yeah. images of these Osage people wearing these 1920s flapper clothes and playing golf, and they've got, you know, white chauffeurs driving them around and everything. These are images that we've never seen in movies before, you know.
3: Yeah. A lot to take in yeah. with what you just said. Number one, yeah, rest in peace, Mr. Robbie Robertson. This was his final film. He died just a couple months before the movie's release. Big time collaborator with Scorsese, and I. love the score. Mm -hmm. I love the occasional heartbeat that kind of goes on throughout the course of the film. Sometimes I grouse on that, but this time I think it really fits the mood of this film. And these opening images of this tribe and these people and the power that they display was something that again I went in completely ignorant I didn't know what to expect I just knew that DiCaprio and De Niro were gonna come and I didn't know if they're gonna do a dances with wolves thing where they integrate with them I didn't know what I was getting into but I knew from this moment I'm like okay we're gonna see these people go down and to see them in power like this and to play golf like so many people in power nowadays do was quite a set of images and right away we're off to a pretty powerful start
2: yeah, absolutely. So I think it's at this point we are introduced to Molly Kyle, played by Lily Gladstone, who is an Osage woman, who is, uh, you know, living there in Oklahoma. And we kind of just are briefly sort of introduced to her. We sort of see... Her situation, she lives with her family, she has her mother, and she has three sisters. And you get what the situation is. All the Osage are required to have these white guardians who are supposed to be there to manage their money because they're, quote, incompetent, unquote. So we see what that setup is like. And then we're introduced, coming off the train, Mr. Leonardo DiCaprio.
3: Before we get to DiCaprio, let me just say, I love this character. I love this actress. This actress has a set of eyes that are so powerful. She's not really playing up the emotion too much. You know, we don't see her get extremely emotional throughout the course of this film, but I'm saying her performance. Nonetheless, she says she does so much with her eyes and her looks that I gravitate to her. And her and this character you're about ready to introduce, there's such great chemistry there. And I was really drawn to Lily Gladstone. I think she is marvelous in this movie. And she really, really turns up. There's not necessarily key in this movie but there's definitely a way of like okay again being completely ignorant were they going to get together were they not going to get together i knew they're going to get together but would they stay together so i was happy to see this character be somebody that i actually really like so you covered a lot of ground in the last five minutes so i just want to comment on the opening because i think one of
4: the things that this movie does instantly this is the key to the movie is that it sets up that this is a somber american tragedy when you look at what this movie's message is. And I think what Scorsese does really well is how he plays with perspective. Throughout the entire movie, there's everything from narration, different characters, there's a device at the end of the movie that we'll talk about, incorporating the old footage, maybe there was some stuff that was actually specifically made for the movie, other parts are historical, but I like that he's answering the question of why is he telling this story? He is telling this not to the osage people because they know this atrocity better than anybody much like silence he is holding up a camera and i mean this in the literal sense to us white american for lack of a a better word in that it wouldn't make sense to tell the story from the osage perspective because they they lived it they suffered through it and making a parallel with what's happened in the world certainly recently in particular whether you look at white supremacy you look at the rise of anti-semitism Certainly here in America, let alone what's happening worldwide. I think he's preaching that complacency and how we just kind of think we know everything is going to permeate throughout this entire movie. So I'm glad the movie starts on such a somber note because that's what this movie needed to be, having seen it in totality. As far as Lily Gladstone goes, once again, all you people who claim Scorsese doesn't know how to write women, it's another chink in your armor. I mean, how many more does he have to do? Karen Hill... Ginger McKenna, Naomi, Countess Olenska, Molly. I know some of these are historical, but for a guy who is often criticized as being an overly masculine filmmaker, Alice doesn't live here anymore. I think he's got a great resume of writing women who know how to stand up and not be overshadowed by these volatile men, even though she is a supporting character. And I think that's why he, I think he is as celebrated as he is
2: and rightfully should be. It's interesting in this case, because if you look at... The character that uh, DiCaprio plays has far, far more lines than what Lily Gladstone is given here. And of course, that was the whole kind of thing that some people criticized the the Anna Paquin character in The Irishman, that she basically only has two lines just in in one scene of that movie. And most people understood why that was the case. But there were some, there were a few people who uh, I think had very bad faith kind of things like, well, why does she have so few lines? And I think that You see in this character what Scorsese is doing so much is allowing Lily Gladstone to tell the story, as Garrett pointed out, with her face, with her eyes, with her expression, and to have her be the voice of the character even more than the dialogue. And to allow her to really embody that character and, and to give her a lot, what it felt like to me, a lot of leeway as an actor to explore who she was in a way that's not some kind of show offy actor bullshit kind of thing. In, in a way that's very real and very honest. Now the question of whether or not she, is she a supporting character? Is she a lead character? In some ways she's sort of the central character of the movie in a way, although of course the, the DiCaprio character, uh, Ernest, who we'll get to has more screen time, more lines, is more of a focus in terms of the time and everything like that. But then the question of, like, whose story is this really is a pretty interesting one. I think the ending kind of gets into that in a really fascinating way. Mm-hmm. And, uh,
3: Ooh, I can't wait to get to that Yes, <laughs> yes.
2: And so uh, this is when... We see the Leonardo DiCaprio character, Ernest Burkhart, get off a train here in this Oklahoma boomtown. It's right after World War One. He's a veteran. He's looking for work, looking for money, looking for a job. And he comes to his uncle, William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro looking for you know an opportunity what every uh, american uh, wants you know a chance to make a shit ton of money doing not a lot of work and right off the bat i think dicaprio makes some really he I mean, he's you know the other person that we're talking about in this series he right off the bat makes some really interesting i found amongst different people some pretty like controversial and divisive choices as an actor in how to play mm-hmm. his character so Ernest he's not intelligent He's not educated. He's not particularly eloquent. And he's not the kind of person who would usually be the lead character
3: in a movie. Absolutely not. And isn't the character in the book, this is one thing my mom did tell me, isn't the character in the book 25? Yeah, he's about, or something. yeah, he, the,
2: the movie takes place over several years and stuff like that. The guy in real life was late 20s, early 30s, uh-huh. around the time this takes place. So significantly younger than DiCaprio is in real life. I don't think that really makes too much of a difference other than No, no, no. no. He's just using
4: the same logic that he does when he chooses the women to date. Younger the better. Shit.
2: (laughs) The character as I understand it. Now if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but the character as I understand it in the book is not a central character. It's a big story and it's a journalistic story, so there's lots of different avenues and there's lots of different detail. But he's not the central focus of the story in the book by David Graham, which is a nonfiction book. Apparently what happened was Scorsese had consulted with the Osage tribe and talked to them about the story and everything. And through talking to them, he sort of came to the decision that he didn't want to make a movie about the detective who comes in, the white detective who comes in and Mm -hmm. uncovers the atrocities and kind of, you know, saves the day to an extent and everything like he didn't want to make Mississippi Burning and uh, I hate no, that movie
4: he also didn't want to make another white savior movie yeah,
2: yeah
4: if it was told from that perspective in combination with it also being from what I've done on my research end the book plays like a crime procedural which knowing that would give context to think why Scorsese of all people would take this movie. But I'm glad he didn't do that because I think the way the story is told is much more interesting for him to do, even though there's so many familiar elements from his filmography that he he draws upon.
3: I agree with that. And I'm with you guys in that I think the decision to go this route is much more interesting. And from what I understand, that book has so many perspectives in that it also talks about this is the inception of the FBI as well. Mm -hmm. And this case was kind of looked at as a, a test of whether or not the FBI, it's justified in its existence. And I'm so glad Scorsese got this route because I think telling this story from the inside out instead of from the outside in is what makes this as interesting and as tragic as it really ends up being.
2: Yep, that's a great way of putting it, from the inside
3: out, Mm because that's really the
2: thing. And Scorsese is so much, as a filmmaker, concerned with subjective points of view. The idea of he usually identifies one character, sometimes it's two or three, but usually it's about one character within the story, and he identifies their perspective. Doesn't mean he endorses it, but he identifies their perspective. And he allows that perspective to be what carries through as the main visual and, and, and tonal kind of idea of the movie. Jake Lamotta in Raging Bull seems to feel when he's in the ring that it's like an existential kind of battle where he has to be destroyed mm-hmm. and has to destroy the other person. So that's what it feels like. That's what that movie feels like. And there's multiple perspectives going on in this movie, but he makes the call to get right into the dangerous part of it you know to right get right into the ugly part of it and that's why I think this character is chosen as who, the person who ends up being kind of the, the central figure. And th- this performance I've noticed from DiCaprio has been pretty divisive, even on people who really like the been. movie. I've seen some yeah. people say that he was really bad. And I've seen some people say uh, there was one of the first reactions out of it. I think it was David Ehrlich, who's always the first guy to have a reaction to anything. He, he said that this is DiCaprio's best performance of his entire career. And that was one of the first things out of camp.
3: I tend to agree with that. Oh, wow. I'm okay. going to side with that. I think the decisions he makes here are great. Look. He looks like he has a thing of tobacco in his lower jaw the entire film. You know, and that's a choice. He looks like, was that you thought. Yeah. Uh, he looks like a bulldog. <laughs> Yeah, and Matt, we covered the last time he played somebody from the South. He did it in Django. This is a much more tempered-down performance than that. And I think the decision to go this route instead of the grander route is a good one. Let's get to the crux of it, Mike. I want to say my thoughts on this movie. We're going to get to the De Niro character here in a bit. And he's more guilty of this than the DiCaprio character. But this is a movie about gaslighting. This is a movie about somebody being the victim of things that does DiCaprio know we don't know most of this movie whether he is in on it or he's not in on it and I think the fact that this is De Niro gaslighting this character and then DiCaprio doing the same thing to Lily unknowingly is what makes the tragedy behind this so grand to me so that
4: character is a representation of the audience as far as the messaging where he is both a participant in the atrocities that we see but there are also times where he's a silent witness. And I think that that's a specific comment that Scorsese is making when comparing this to modern day. The thing that surprised me, and I lean more towards Garrett's side, I was surprised how much I like Leo in this movie because I think this is the first movie in a long time, maybe one of the few, where I saw a character before I saw Leonardo DiCaprio interesting and a lot of that does have to do with the choices he makes it looks like he stole the teeth from the django unchained set and just put them in his mouth again he's got this scowl throughout a lot of the movie his shoulders Mm -hmm. are slumped it's a very anti-movie star type of performance but not in the brad pitt world war z route where he tried to make himself an action star even though he's fucking 50 i think that leo was really trying something different And it was important because, as Adam likes to joke, why does Scorsese keep hiring this fucking guy? Because Scorsese in this movie takes... These are his two muses. He's got Mm -hmm. both of them in the same movie. One with De Niro, who he made movies with for 25 years, and Leo has been over 20. So it's pretty close. Mm -hmm. But I think they're equally integral in certain ways to Scorsese's overall career. And with DiCaprio, and we'll talk about De Niro in a bit, he's outside of his niche, and he's outside of his comfort zone. And more importantly, he's not doing the Billy Bob Thornton sling blade thing, which is what I thought yeah. I thought this character could have. I did I too. thought that's what this could yeah. have been, or he would have mm-hmm. gone too far into the, it's funny, his name is Ernest, because I think of like Jim
2: Carrey, <laughs> but he, not,
4: he could have gone that level of just
1: ridiculous.
4: <laughs> or what Robert Downey Jr.'s character jokes about in Top Thunder, going full blank. He gets it right. I think this is one of his best performances, but... I can see why people find it divisive, but what I appreciate is that Leo is now at a point in his career where he has learned that acting is not just about how loud you can shout.
2: He does get at least one good shout scene in though. Oh yes he does. What it might kind of take on this character is that in a lot of movies that are sort of similar to this, you know, these kind of crime or westerns type movies, sort of violent kind of movies, there's often this character who will pop up for one or two or even three scenes, but not be a huge part of the movie, who's like the kind of like dumb, twitchy, minor participant in the crime who will be in an interrogation scene with the main character. And 30 years ago, he'd be played by Brad Dourif, and today he'd be played by Scoot McNary. And this time, it's like, what if the, what if we actually look at who that guy is? What if that guy is not color for two scenes, who just kind of gives you, like, kind of a little bit of black humor of, like, look at this dumb idiot who's also a horrible criminal? Actually, let's get into the soul of this guy who is pretty, not just reprehensible, but easy to just dismiss. A guy who really does not have a lot going for him in terms of any kind of positive human trait. It's not like Scorsese. That's totally new to him. He's often built his entire films around people who are awful people. But usually it's someone who's a little bit more charismatic by design. Or someone who has a little bit more overt complexity to him, in a way. Or somebody who is more of like an alpha character as opposed to this guy this guy is kind of like the guys who get knocked off at the end of goodfellas this is the guy he's playing the guy who buys his wife a fur coat even though jimmy
4: told him not to buy anything. exactly you're touching on what what i appreciate about this is that to garrett's point Corsese, a lot of his main characters are either criminals sometimes blatantly so Or they are firmly routed as anti-heroes in the quote-unquote proper sense, like Travis Bickle, I think, is the pinnacle of that. But this is sort of nothing new in the sense that the story is being told from the perspective of criminals. You would call this movie Good Flowers in a lot of ways. But the difference between this and Goodfellas is that, yes, you are seeing, as we'll see later on, the violence, the murder. Much like Goodfellas. That movie's got a pretty high body count, as this one does as well. But you get swept up in Goodfellas with the charisma of the guys. You know, Henry Hill, even though he's a scumbag, he can hold his own. It's not until he gets hooked on cocaine that stuff starts to go downhill. But there's something kind of cool about that lifestyle. Or you're wooed by just being sucked up in the pageantry, even though that movie's pretty down and dirty. Here, you're not asked to side with the violence it's impossible to be persuaded by the lifestyle because Scorsese makes you a captive audience. You have to just watch outright genocide, and there's no way you can justify it, certainly in a moral sense, but even in that way that Goodfellas tries to do with, they're Goodfellas. You wouldn't want to get on their bad side, but there's something endearing about that. Here, it's not. This movie really holds you hostage for three and a half hours. There are parts of it that it's almost like a, it could be like one of those Dateline 1922 could be the tagline of this movie. So I, I think that is what makes this a new chapter in Scorsese's crime. And they're also not, like, chaotically interesting. Like, Jordan Belfort, these guys are outright cowards. Yeah. yeah. The De Niro character is an outright con man. So I, I think there's a lot of good in the sense that it's something different with how Scorsese's doing. Something that on the surface, people would accuse, oh, he's done this movie before.
3: Yeah, and you know what? And I was one who... Again, knowing nothing about this, I had no idea that this was going to be kind of shot in a fellow's way. I mean, we have a murder happen by a gun from a farm oh, that yeah. could happen in any of those fucking gangster films that he has done. I was scared of that while I was watching this. But these are guys who, Matt, you hit it right on the head, dude. These guys are dumbasses. These guys, with the exception of Robert De Niro, who... Again, we keep building them up, but I'm going to save my thoughts on him. I think these guys are unwillingly doing the bidding of a certain amount of characters. And with that in mind, that's what makes it so tragic, and that's what drew me to it. These guys are doing heinous things that they are not aware of, rhyme or reason, why they are doing it. And I'm glad you mentioned that first killing, because there is that great—I'm trying to remember the exact
2: order of it. But, you know, you see the newsreel, and you get the sense of this boomtown kind of thing. And there's this sequence that's kind of just punctuated with— this woman being shot, based on yeah. her front lawn—a uh-huh. white woman, by the way—that can yeah, them. and it's but it's just that kind of moment of putting this first note of violence into the story. The first part of this movie. Not everything is so bad at first. I mean, you know, there's moments in this thing, there's stretches where you almost want to believe, and you, if you have in the intelligence, you know that it's not going to be there, but you almost want to believe that maybe these communities are going to live side by side or I- incorporate each other's lifestyles together. There's that wedding scene, which is honestly really kind of touching, where it's a combination of a, a sort of a traditional Osage wedding with a Catholic wedding, and you see people dancing, and throughout the movie, you see, especially early on, And it becomes less so as the movie goes on. But especially early on, you see a lot of the white characters have incorporated the indigenous styles of clothing into their Mm -hmm. attire. And in the same way, a lot of the Osage characters are wearing the kind of stuff you'd expect to see in a Hollywood movie from the 20s. And so there's a lot of cultural interchange that's going on in the First half of the movie, and then by the second half, the communities are totally at odds with each other for obvious reasons. And you get that sense of how this conspiracy, this crime, this genocide, is completely destroying any possibility of community integration and brotherhood, mankind, and everything. Well, that
4: contrast is also why I think a lot of this is so powerful, in that you'll have the big ceremony scenes that are celebratory, and then you just have, it'll cut to somebody being shot. And you see bodies just being thrown away like you would throw out trash in a dumpster. And they're usually preceded by the more quieter scenes in the movie. A lot of conversations. And again, for a guy who critics will say, his detractors, that he makes violence a spectacle. Here, he's illustrating that there was no emotion in these killings. They were mob hits. Yeah. Uh, often unassuming. And the, that one with the young mom and the, the baby in the front yard, I kind of sat oh. up in my seat going, I can't believe I saw that. Oh. So I I was surprised at how shocking this was, but not in the way of, much as I love Casino, there's that part where they put the guy's head in the vice and his eyeball pops out. That's a bit excessive, but
3: here I never felt like this was certainly not glorification. I mean, look. <laughs> no, there, there is no glorification of this violence whatsoever. No. And I, I respect that restraint of an 82-year-old man who has, Matt, as you've said, has been known for this kind of thing. Hell, even Irishmen had a little bit of that. We're not seeing any glamorization here. This is tough stuff. And I'm going to go ahead and reveal this right now. My fiance, who, as I mentioned, she has a little Indian descent. She cried three times in this movie. And this was one of those scenes when he takes out this mom and this kid. It's devastating.
2: So Robert De Niro plays... William King Hale, who is rich cattle baron in Oklahoma, owns a big ranch. He's also a reserve deputy sheriff. He is very charming, as uneloquent as Ernest, his nephew, is. He's eloquent, and he's persuasive, and he knows so much about the Osage. He's actually tight with the Osage community. They trust him, and he seems like he's a philanthropist who is a genuine friend of theirs on the surface. We figure out that he's not very quickly, but you see him operate in both worlds and how he plays this kind of character. And he is a monster. He's a completely evil person. He is a, a sociopath, a murderer, someone who's interested just in his own personal gain, who would destroy anybody, members of his own family, members of... There's no line he won't cross for his own personal gain, and he's smart enough for most of the movie until the end convince most people that his gain is their gain as well.
3: This was one of the castings I was scared of. I gotta be honest. I know it's weird to say that about Robert De Niro, but let's talk about what Robert De Niro has done for the last 20 years. With the exception of The Irishman, which I feel like was him and Scorsese playing in a familiar sandbox. He is the most evil I have ever seen in this movie. And that includes Jake LaMotta that includes all these characters he's played in the past this is a cold-hearted guy who as you said Mike he is so charming the first time we meet him I had no idea where the story was going but when he meets up with Ernest in this opening scene he turns on the charm but there's just something underneath that surface and I have not seen De Niro play that kind of character in so long it was refreshing to see him in this movie play this complete bastard of a character who God do you want him to fucking suffer by the end of it yeah And, uh, you know, he's getting so much love for this performance, and I'm glad because I I
2: loved The Irishman, and I thought he was fantastic in that film, and I thought very underappreciated because I think a lot of people, even those who really liked the movie, I think kind of overlooked what he was doing for various reasons. I'm not going to get into the whole thing with The Irishman because we need to have this come in at a reasonable time. But I like to see De Niro playing, it's the word I used earlier, but it's the right word, an alpha-type character for the first time mm-hmm. in a long time, playing somebody a lot like Jimmy, his character in Goodfellas, but even more so in terms of the evil charm and the satanic kind of qualities to the character and the calculation and playing somebody who manipulates people and controls people and who's charismatic. And it is uh, really, uh, to say this about somebody who's been starring in movies for 50 years seems kind of crazy, but it's almost revelatory, honestly, to see him do this at this point in his career and uh, to play somebody with such kind of vigor, really. And uh, also, I
3: think this is probably the best accent work that he's ever done in his entire career as yeah. well. And look, this is Grumpy Grandpa here. He's, he's Ever since Meet the Parents, he has done so many just crappy comedy <laughs> roles that I had literally turned on Robert De Niro. I was like, the guy doesn't have it in him anymore. And then The Irishman came out, and I don't have as much love for that as many people do. I do like it. And I did think that it was like, okay, Robert De Niro's kind of back. But here, I really enjoyed the fact that I was scared of Robert De Niro again. Yeah. Much like what DiCaprio did, Going Against Type,
4: when you think of De Niro outside of Meet the Fockers 5 and, as Gary all the crap he's made since since he stopped making movies with Scorsese on a regular basis. You think of, like, that intense stare and the way he can just, like, look through your soul. And, and there's something scary about him in a lot of those earlier movies, like, I think, A Taxi Driver. This is sort of the inverse of his Max Cady performance, where that is also evil, but he's very over the top intentionally so, because that that movie's a commentary on how ridiculous slasher movies had gotten. Here, the accent's still there, but it's not as over the top. It's more of a drawl than anything else. But I love how he kind of takes a Jeff Bridges approach where it's that I'm your buddy, always has a smile on his face, you're my family, and then he twists it. And the difference between what he does in Goodfellas is that there's a part in Goodfellas where he just turns on Henry completely. Even in this movie, to the very end, he is still... Lying to Ernest's face about, like, I have your best interest in mind, even when he's against him in court. He never drops that. And I think, in the same way that certain movies are tied, this and Oppenheimer coming out in the same year. It's got to be Robert De Niro versus Robert Downey Jr. And they're both kind of the same type of performance. Yep. Established actors... The real, quote-unquote, villains of the movie. I mean, this one is much more of a villain. Louis Strauss didn't murder anybody as far as we know. But you have this kind of performance from Leo versus what Killian Murphy does. Both historical films, both three-plus hours. I was thinking of Oppenheimer a lot watching this movie. And a lot of that kind of has to do with this. But also, it's no secret that this boy's life, you know, this is a reteaming for the two of them 30 years later. And there's a scene in this movie. That really took me back to this boy's life. It could have been a scene. Me too. It could have been a scene yeah. from that. So yeah, it was just so funny seeing them in this, and it makes me so mad at what De Niro has let himself become. I
2: know. Yep. Because like outside of this and Silver Linings Playbook, which was also kind of an anomaly. The other thing that I think is really interesting about his performance or the character, really, um, and the writing of it is the character is kind of a takedown of like. I, I'm not. I don't think this is Scorsese getting revenge on Kevin Costner for taking his Best Director Oscar from him. But I, I there. I think there's an element of the Dances with Wolves guy. The idea of the white guy who understands the Indian culture as much as they do, and he's in with them. They accept him and everything like that. And like revealing how. You no, know, for a lot of people, understanding the culture is how you. Destroy them. And one of the things that's fascinating about this character is I think in a way he's both a liar but also kind of weirdly sincere in a way. The Searchers is a big influence on Scorsese, Uh, John Ford's The Searchers, that uh, stars John Wayne. And there's a scene in that movie where John Wayne's character mutilates a body, uh, a, a Comanche man who he killed, and he mutilates the body in a very specific way, and another character goes, why did you do that? And he goes, now, in his belief, his soul can't go on to the afterworld now. And it's this idea of taking that kind of idea of a guy who understands this other culture so well, he knows how to desecrate it and taking that and expanding that to a full villain character. De Niro, fantastic in this, glad to see him play this kind of character game, but also play kind of a new character for the first time. Now, one of the first things that King, which is the De Niro character, tells uh, Ernest, the DiCaprio character, is find yourself a wife in the Osage. Because the idea is, what happens is, if we marry Osage women, and the Osage start dying, we inherit the money. We inherit the oil rights, and we get fucking rich. And that's the basic element of the whole conspiracy. And we see the permutations of it throughout the rest of the movie, and we see different other things. We see insurance schemes of different kinds go on, but that's the basic idea of it, is if we get into the Osage community and we get them to trust us and let us in, then we can start to destroy them. And if we destroy them, the richer we get. That's the entire basis of it. And for the next three and a half hours, we see that play
4: out in all these different permutations you know because i think uh, scorsese is really riffing on a lot of his past movies this is very much the matthew mcconaughey scene in the wolf of wall street
3: yeah series, i thought of that too you know
4: yeah. for brainwashing him with the self-justification and grandizing that oh what i'm doing is for like the greater good that like oh it's, it's all about me this Hale character is basically the palpatine of this universe where like he played both sides and got his wish ultimately
2: It's not too long before Ernest becomes a driver around town and he meets Molly. And they have a very interesting... There's a lot of Scorsese movies that weirdly do involve courtship. He's a guy who's been married, I think, four times. And it seems to me that the ways that a man and a woman fall for each other to the point where they agree to marry is like something that's an area of fascination to him. And he likes to find the way that that happens. And it's always a little bit different. He likes to, you know, find the little psychological touches in this thing, and here it's very interesting, because DiCaprio's character is not very charismatic. We know that DiCaprio, we've seen Catch Me If You Can, Wolf of Wall Street, Django, even when he's playing an evil person, he can certainly turn up the charisma and seductive kind of qualities of that character. Ernest doesn't have a lot of those abilities. He's not clever and witty. He is somebody who doesn't have a lot going for him. So the idea of the Lily Gladstone character, Molly, falling for him, that's a big ask. And uh, I I do wonder how y'all thought about whether that was successful or not. Because we do see the courtship play out. There's the famous (laughs) screenshot of uh, the two of them sitting at a dinner table. And and the many permutations, I keep saying permutations, the many combinations That they go through in that scene, and we have the part that's in the trailer where he goes, you have a beautiful color skin, what color do you call that? And she goes, my color. And we see these things play out, and I think that it's an interesting quality with the way that Lily Gladstone's character plays off of DiCaprio, where she, she sees through his bullshit in a lot of ways.
4: Yeah, but she's unlike Karen Hill or Ginger, who are wooed by people who are very charismatic. He's got none of those traits. He's an imbecile. And yeah, he fought in the war, but he was a cook. He was a cook. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he's Steven Seagal in Under Siege, um, <laughs> with just as ridiculous a haircut. By the way, props to Leo for this is not a flattering haircut whatsoever.
3: No, nothing about this role. No, but uh, this
4: is
2: the grossest he's ever looked, including The Revenant, where he's he's a mangled.
4: The teeth in Django Unchained are more accentuated as
2: far as as how gross
4: they are. But this romance, smart thing is that this should be the thing that humanizes him. But it does the opposite. Because every time he's attempting to do his Ric Flair impression and woo her, he is so blatantly steered by his uncle into, it's just about the money. It's just about the money. And that undercurrent, you can tell that's always on his mind. Because he can't, as we'll see in multiple instances of this movie, he can tell the truth to a lot of people, but he can't do it to her. Because she can see right through it without him having to come up with an excuse.
3: I don't think since Kate Winslet has there been an actress who has as much chemistry with Leonardo DiCaprio as Lily Gladstone does here. And that's the real tragedy of this to me. And that's why telling it from this point of view is to me more tragic to me. It's it's better storytelling to me because this is an unwitting character who is caught up in this romance with this woman and their chemistry crackles. I don't know where Scorsese found this woman. She did a a movie
2: several years ago called Certain Women, which is a Canadian film. I didn't see it. It was a Sundance film, very well regarded critically. And Lily Gladstone, that was where I first heard her name. I didn't see the movie. It's a movie with Michelle Williams and, uh, and Kristen Stewart. And she got some awards or award nominations. Uh, Lily Gladstone did for that movie, but it really was very, very indie. I believe that Scorsese has said that that's where he saw her. That was a 2016 film, and she's done a
3: few things okay.
2: since then, but not a ton of high-profile stuff.
4: Or, yeah, yeah, she's sort of you know, well, she's in the same spot that Margot Robbie was in for Wolf of Wall Street.
3: Yeah. And you know what? She spends the majority of the end of this movie. And this is the truth behind the power of this character is a lot of the final 30, 40 minutes of this movie is her just laying in bed. But yet her presence in this movie is never unfelt by me. And I think the romance is something that I root for. And the tragedy behind it is we get a wedding and everything, but it's kind of an impossible thing to ask these two to be happy. But Mike, what would you feel about this whole table scene? I mean, this is something we have seen this entire campaign for really, the yeah, movie. It's the shot from the fucking whale. It's- I kept asking Matt, because when I was doing the intro for those podcasts, I was putting it together. I was like, Matt, is there anything other than this fucking picture? Is there any sound I can put in this goddamn intro? And Matt's like, nope. But it does play a part in the movie with how, as you guys mentioned, how he courts her here. And I think what draws
2: him to her is actually his lack of seductiveness, in that she does see through him, like, pretty much immediately. Although, yes, weirdly, she also, she also, like, she's kind of willfully ignorant in a way. of She should figure out what it is, but she's kind of deluding herself. There's a lot of help to delude her. Like, there's a whole conspiracy to, like, have her mm-hmm. not realize the truth. But it is right there in front of her. And I think it's because she kind of likes his fucking stupidity in a way. Like she, I think it's, she kind of likes that he is so bad at being a liar. This whole discussion that she has with her sisters about, is he a coyote or is he a snake? Yeah, right. And the question of, is he a predator you can see? Is he something sneaky? Is he something that comes right up to you? And I, I kind of like that. He's just kind of dumb and he's just kind of like, he's bad at things. I think that's kind of endearing to her. And it, this is a movie about how you can be both a complete, deceptive, lying, gaslighter, and also honest. It's so complicated, the relationship between him and Willie Gladstone in this movie. And, to the, and there's stuff that the audience is left to kind of decide amongst yourself how much complicity we believe each character has. In some cases, it's very obvious. In some cases, it's obvious in certain respects, but not obvious in others. And it's at this point that people start dying off more quickly so molly's mother lizzie who's played by tantu cardinal who's a canadian actress who's uh, really had a long career and is a really really good actor she's very sickly she's got multiple sisters one of whom dies of i think what they call a wasting sickness early on yeah Yeah, it's not diabetes which right
4: is a a key point to make in this movie is that one of the reasons why Hale is so dead set on going after the Osage women is that because they were so predisposed to diabetes, they were not going to live exceptionally long so the men would outlive them. That was something I was totally unaware of.
2: With, yeah, there's here. the scene where the doctor says you're eating like a white person in the in the sense that they have all these candies now. It's the 1920s. There's like a modern commercialized society. You can go down to the store and buy chocolates and sweets if you, if you like to in a way that you couldn't 30, 40 years earlier if you lived in a traditional lifestyle. And so there's that element of it because there's all these people who are newly wealthy in a way that they wouldn't have been generations earlier. They're materially wealthy. And it, with material wealth, there comes these extra things that end up being a a hazard but the the real hazard is is actually more overt than that but that's part of the story that she's got to her sister Anna I believe is the one who is kind of a She's the one that's the big crux of the third act. Yeah, and Anna is played by an actress named Kara Jade Myers, who I thought was really good. She's appeared in two movies before, one of which was Jersey Boys, (laughs) in the role of barroom dancer, uncredited. (laughs) We get the family dynamics and everything, and these different white men are marrying into... The family, there's a character, Bill Smith, who marries the sister Minnie, and there's several, like Sturgill Simpson, who's from where I'm from, he's from Lexington and Versailles, Kentucky. He's really good in this film. Jack White appears at the very end. Pete Yorn? Yeah, but the, there's their older White dude who is a key witness at one point near the end, is apparently a blues harmonica player named Charlie White mm-hmm. from Kosciusko, Mississippi which is just fun to say. It's a film with a huge cast, and it's a lot of, in addition to Caprio, De Niro, Gladstone, you have a lot of people who I believe a lot of them are first-time actors, but these musicians who are making a turn the, the white musicians who are appearing as the various characters in the conspiracy, and then a lot of, I think, Oklahoma locals, a lot of Osage, and uh, this is a movie where there's a scene that's set at a council of the Osage, and this one guy delivers this long monologue, this really angry monologue about how they were driven off their land and how they're not going to be driven mm-hmm. off again. It's so good, and it's one of those things it where per- maybe every word of it is scripted, Maybe every word of his improvised. I don't know. It feels so authentic.
3: It does feel authentic. I believe the only one who really improvised on this was DiCaprio, which really pissed De Niro <laughs> off. He pulled Scorsese aside. He's like, you better get this dude in line. He's got to start saying these lines the way they're written. got to remember, um, De Niro um, was yeah. very,
4: very
2: method.
3: Yeah, yeah very method. Yeah, very
4: Because he did those Meet the
3: Parents movies, and I'm pretty sure a bunch
4: of
2: that was improv. Yeah, don't get me Well, he does improv in, like, Goodfellas and Casino and stuff. Scorsese is usually, he's mostly not an improv type director with his actors, but there's a few movies where he does it, I think, where he trusts the actors, understand the sort of milieu of the characters. So, like, he lets De Niro and Pesci do it in Goodfellas because, yeah, they understand what they're doing
4: there. Yeah, he he let Nicholson do it in The Departed.
3: Yeah. You know, I'm going to say, this cast is very divisive. I like this cast. I like the ensemble of it. There's usually, in a Scorsese film, there's at least one or two performances I'm just gonna eh about, and with the cast with this many people who, like you said, Mike, this is their first or second or third role, I thought I was gonna get into a situation like that where I was gonna argue with you guys about it, but honestly, I enjoyed this entire cast. This monologue, as you said, Mike, it is very well delivered. I think a lot of the things that happen in this movie are so well authenticated, and I gotta say, this movie cost $200 million to make which when you think about it is insane I don't know if a lot of that went into visual effects I know DiCaprio got 30 million dollars himself I, I just think all in all this is a very well put together movie and I think all of the things including the acting including the visual effects and everything in this is really well warranted in a budget that is 200 million dollars
2: yeah, and you don't want to get too hung up on budget and things like that, but that number was, no. it is just so it's just so intimidating that like when it popped up, you know, and it's been around for a while, like this is the most expensive movie Apple TV's ever done.
4: All three of them, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. And I did wonder how I was like, that's a lot of money, like you know, I was like, what's that going to look like, and it. I got to like it's it's on the screen like it's every like this is this movie feels really just kind of epic in its scope and it's mostly just set in a few towns that are like nearby each other but the towns feel like towns they don't feel like sets They don't feel like...
3: No, they don't feel like... Exactly. And they did film in Oklahoma, from what I heard. Yeah,
2: biggest thing ever done in Oklahoma, film-wise, and probably just (laughs) life-wise. Sorry, Oklahoma. This year has been... You mentioned Oppenheimer earlier, Matt, and that's a movie that I think weirdly also kind of lingers with this one. They're not made in any connection to each other, but there's a certain quality that Oppenheimer has that this movie has as well, but that movie... Asteroid City in its own way, Barbie in its own way, that's very different. This has been a really good year for these big, well-constructed community sets, movies, where it feels very practical. And of course, these days, everything is touched up a little bit digitally, and there's augmented and everything like that. But this movie, in addition to the the other ones I mentioned, sometimes, you know, if you go someplace and you film there, and it's not a green screen somewhere, it might actually
1: look good.
2: It might look like you're in a place, and it might feel real, and you might get a nice kick out of that. Anyways, that's a rant of mine,
3: but... And, Ma- Mike, you mentioned that Games in New York was really the first time he really used digital photography. I think he is embracing the authenticness of this particular landscape, this particular place that he's filming in. Like He is um, embracing all of it. And, yeah, he films it very well. I think this is a very well-shot film. Yeah.
2: this is uh, The cinematographer in on this one is Rodrigo Prieto. He's been Scorsese's cinematographer on his last few movies, on The Irishman, on Silence, on Wolf of Wall Street. Four very different-looking movies. He also Definitely. did
4: um Brokeback Mountain was his real claim to fame. Yes, yes.
2: It's it's a long movie. It, the plot is weirdly elaborate and weirdly simple in the sense that what I laid out earlier is exactly what continues to happen for two, two and a half hours. The white people marry into the Osage and burrow their way into the community and then kill people off one by one. It's this whole thing where they lure her into a place to get her complacent and then they kill her. And we don't see the killing at this time. We see it later on. They do
4: what I call the Mystic River effect.
2: Ugh. <laughs> I don't like that saying.
4: <laughs> they That's that same thing of like, is that my sister in there? Well?
2: Oh
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, except it's acted well. I think is the difference. But anyway, I like this framing device too. I, again, it, it puts the focus on Lily. It puts yeah. the focus on who the real tragic figure of this f- story really is. Yeah,
2: and she's so devastating in that scene where they. Yep. They come down to the to the creek, and everybody's already there. There's that shot the camera is coming through and it's, it's the perspective that Molly has as she's walking through this crowd of people, mostly white people. And they're all kind of staring because they know that her sister is the one that's dead. So she's walking in there. And then the scene where they do the autopsy is so awful. It's awful. Carve into her head. It's, paid off in multiple ways later on about <laughs> what caused the death even things like there's the part where dicaprio's character burkhart, uh, ernest burkhart is talking to the undertaker who's trying to overcharge him for, mm-hmm. a casket he's yeah like, oh, casket. he's like well open casket she doesn't have a head she doesn't have a face how is it gonna be a yeah. casket country hill among other things I did notice the one guy is the fucking dude from Mighty Ducks, but that's his own story.
4: Also the guy, that, the Undertaker, wasn't he the guy from No Country for Old Men?
2: He also was on Northern Exposure. He was like the, the rich guy in town. Like Barry Corbin is his name. Surprise, surprise, he's from the state of Texas, which is shocking, I think. Seems like he was born with a Stetson on his hat, I'm guessing, but that's a, the Stetson on his head.
3: Now is Ernest, Ernest is still not privy to what's going on well, he, at this point. I was trying to figure that out as I was watching this. One of the big big sad things about going into this podcast is I really do feel this movie benefits from multiple viewers now that I know what's going on because guys I'm serious I literally spent this entire movie not really knowing what the hell was going on and if Ernest is either in on it or if he's so dumb that De Niro's doing it and he doesn't realize I didn't know the majority of this film so now that I know I think this is one of those rare Scorsese movies in my eyes where it really benefits from watching it multiple times because I want to see the machinations of everything that's going on. And I think Scorsese does a very good job. And that's, this is the mark of a really good filmmaker. I'm sure you guys are surprised. I'm this complimentary to <laughs> what he's doing here, but this is the mark of a great filmmaker where he is putting little things in that give you the hints of what's going on, but you're not fully sure until he wraps it up for you at the end, which I definitely have thoughts about. But I think. The, the way he frames this movie Is so well done And
2: there's uh, moments like There's a part later on Where a character gets beaten And we don't really see Who's doing it We just kind of yeah. it Some faceless goons And then later on we cut to the same scene, and we see that it was DiCaprio doing it. And, yeah. Which is a really good, I think, indictment of that character's guilt. And also our own willingness to write him out of the story. I- ignore that he's doing this. De Niro tells him in his first fucking scene what the plan is. The Osage died, the money comes to us. He doesn't say we're going to kill them methodically one by one, but he says they're going to die and it's going to come to us. So we fucking know he knows, and, like, we are, like, ourselves kind of, like, but is he doing it? I don't know. And it's like, yeah, he's doing it. There's, he's the fucking driver. Yeah, like, exactly. I, he, he's there the whole time. Know. He's there the whole time. Yeah. Minnie dies of the wasting illness. Anna dies, gets shot. And the Osage are starting to realize, like, no, this isn't just one-off incidents, weird accidents, sickness. Like, there's a, there's something going on here, and we need to fight back. We need to do something to actually affect some kind of change here. They hire a private investigator, and we see this scene where it's king hale and ernest burkhart as the two white well there's a few but there's not many but they're two of the white people who are in this osage council meeting and they're just there they're like the wolves in plain sight i mean that's the big that was the line at the end of the trailer is like can you find the wolves in this picture is that they're these guys are sitting there and they're they're talking about how much they're going to involve themselves in like fixing the problem while they are the problem
3: what do you guys feel about jesse Plemons? In this movie, having just watched the second season of Fargo, not two months ago... I know he was in The Irishman, but this was this felt like kind of an odd casting. I think he's great in this. Oh, I love him. Oh, I love him in this. And I think DiCaprio would have definitely done something different with this. We would have gotten more of like the departed type DiCaprio in this movie if that was true. Here, I think Jesse Plemons does it very well. And I love, love, love the reference to J. Edgar Hoover because DiCaprio himself was J. Edgar Hoover. It's a wonderful reference. I enjoy Jesse Plemons in this. And I love how downplayed he is in this. Because, again, if this was a story of the infiltration of this character into this tried to be the quote-unquote hero, as Matt outlined earlier, it wouldn't have been as captivating as the movie is. And the fact that this guy can't really figure out what the hell's going on is kind of the crux of the story. Yeah, and he's one of the great,
2: I think, underplayers of contemporary cinema. He's one of those guys who's so non-affected. I've been a huge fan of his. I think he's one of the best working actors quite honestly. And I've been a huge fan of his since Friday Night Lights. And he he popped for me on that show. He's, if anybody has not seen it, he's the nerdy sidekick to one of the football players. He's like comic relief. And I was like, this dude is so real. He doesn't seem like he's doing the Hollywood version of this guy. He seems like he's the real guy. And I was like, I feel like this guy in this cast full of ripped, Handsome Taylor Kitsch looking motherfuckers. I was like, I feel like this guy's got the staying power, and he does. And like Power of the Dog, I was so glad to see him get his first Academy Award nomination. And mm-hmm. yeah, and and I was so excited when it was announced that he was going to be in this. I was, uh, I'm not actually disappointed, but there was false reporting, There's just kind of mistaken reporting that he was going to be the lead because the character was initially going to be the lead before they re- reworked it. And so there was this thing of like, oh, no, Jesse Plemons is playing the lead. And I was like, oh, yeah, awesome. He's not. He's <laughs> But he does have a really yeah. good section of the movie where he gets to kind of be very understated and very... And then he was a classic kind of Western hero, but just very limited. You know what I mean? He can't save the day. He can do good, but he can't save
4: the day. Well, I'm just surprised you're mentioning him this early because he's not the first investigator. The, the first guy that they sent to Washington, he gets stabbed in the back alley. Yes. Um, yeah. Because Jesse Plemons doesn't come in until at least the two hour mark. I like Jesse Plemons. He's also gotten past the meth damon comparisons, mm-hmm. which is good. He played the heavy in uh, what's that Johnny Depp, Woody Bulger movie called? Black Mass. Yeah, he's one of the guys in that. But a lot of times he's in the background, like he's Philip Seymour Hoffman's son in The Master. Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, which holy shit, there is a resemblance. Yep, he's in The Irishman a little bit. Small role, but you know, yeah, yeah. Small role. yeah. I was happy he was in this, and again, he's not a huge star. What I like about this supporting cast is that outside of the Osage actors, there wasn't that because as much as I love Wolf Wolf Wall Street, there is that thing of like, oh, spot the director, John Favreau, <laughs> Spike <laughs> Jones. John worth is people who just kind of come and go sometimes takes you out here outside of one person that just caught me off guard. I was pleasantly surprised by the, the casting process of this
2: movie. So, uh, Garrett, you're talking about, you're right, he's not the first investigator comes in. I think he's the third. I think there's two guys who get dispatched. Because first there's the guy who they send off to Washington, D.C., and they he just gets shanked in an alley. And then there's the other guy with, like, the big mustache who does investigate for a bit and, like, kind of gets some leads, and then they just beat the shit out of him and kill him. And... Well, for
4: the record, they didn't kill him.
2: I was doing research on this. Yeah, I, I saw that, too. The real guy didn't die, and in Wikipedia it says that he quote, William J. Burns, a private detective, is beaten and chased away. I don't think that's what happens in the movie. I feel like that's inaccurate. I feel like they changed it for the movie, but that's that's its own story.
4: Because uh, it's um, kind of unclear, because they could get around with Osage dying because they treat him like dogs. White people getting murdered? <laughs> right, That's they make
2: a point of that later, that that's kind of what ends up making the difference. You know, there's dozens and dozens of Osage who get killed off, Pretty egregiously, and then say, so are you here because of the white guy who got killed? As That happens later on, which I think is smart. I think it's a smart thing to note it's not fucking again mississippi burning again where you would if you watch that you would believe that the fbi's top priority in 1964 was stopping racism which is <laughs> not the case but there's a part in this movie where they're in a movie theater and they're watching a newsreel of an event that happened in oklahoma at this time the tulsa race massacre where uh, members of the ku klux klan and other white supremacist groups went into a black neighborhood in Tulsa and completely just destroyed it they killed hundreds of people hundreds of black people and destroyed an entire community and displaced thousands you see that scene De Niro's character is is watching this in the movie theater and you see it reflected on his glasses I liked that acknowledgement of this is not a one-off thing and it's not a thing that's just confined to one racial community this is something that's going on right down the street and all over the country and you know, the Osage think that something like that can happen to them. It's around this time also that there's a couple really great scenes where Tantu Cardinal, as uh, Lizzie, Molly's mom, has a few visions. The first is she sees an owl.
3: Oh, God, that owl. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Was that a real owl? Or did they CGI that thing? It looked real to me. If it was CGI, it was very well done.
1: Yeah. It, yeah, was, it, it
2: wasn't the deer in I Am Legend. So she sees an owl and she says that that's a sign that her people are passing away. And then later on, there's an even more, uh, I think, incredible scene where she has a vision of her ancestors reaching out to her to welcome her into the next life as she dies. And it's this really beautiful scene. Garrett, you talked earlier about the Robbie Robertson score, which is really great and really evocative. And I believe, if I'm not incorrect, and perhaps I'm wrong, but I believe this scene where she has a vision of herself being welcomed by her ancestors into the next life is no music.
3: Yeah, it's not accompanied by any score. Yeah. No, no score whatsoever. God, so powerful.
2: Yeah, it, it plays like a Terrence Malick
4: movie. Except what's the word I'm looking for? Good.
3: So, on that note, we were taking
2: shots at Easter earlier, and I was laughing and laughing, and now one goes at Malick, and I'm like, let's move on. So, now that her mother has died, there's the inheritance is becoming more, like, accumulated amongst Molly and her sisters, It's just the closer that it gets to just coming to Molly and then going to Ernest if she dies, the more the the plot encroaches. They've started a family, but as we mentioned earlier, Molly's diabetic and they have this brand new drug out called insulin, which is supposed to help with
3: that. <laughs> Especially imported from what, France, they said, or something, something like, like that. that. There's, like, there's
2: mm-hmm. only four
4: Five.
3: The whole world. Yeah. One of five people who have yeah. gotten it at this point, which could be, yeah. that
2: could just be bullshit, like patronizing. That's
3: what I was thinking.
2: I wonder. I, oh. I don't know enough about insulin to say. They make it sound like it's like the real IMAX screens for, <laughs> for Oppenheimer. Like there's only 30 in the world. Which I saw, by the way. Humble Proud of that one. And so this becomes the next step of the plot. Is Hale is instructing Ernest to Give her the insulin. And there's a certain amount of how much does he understand what he's doing? Because it's killing her. Because they're poisoning it. And there's this element of how much do we know? And eventually we do figure out what he does know. But there's this element of, like, does he understand that he is killing her? Because they're like, it'll just slow her down. There's a lot in The Irishman about how in the mob they don't tell anybody, hey, we're going to kill you if you don't do this thing. It's all euphemistic. For whatever reason. Even people who kill people for a living, they paint houses they don't actually shoot people. They paint houses. And there's kind of that going on with the De Niro character in this movie. He talks in euphemism. It is clear what he's doing, but he talks about, it's going to slow her down. It's going to kill her. He knows that, and we know that. And whether Ernest does or not is, is its own question that eventually we realize he does. No, but whether he is in denial from the beginning, it's really fascinating. It's, it's hard to talk about almost. It, it is intentionally kind of elusive and ambiguous.
3: It is so hard to talk about because it's so fucking evil. Yeah. It's just an evil, evil plot. And, you know, this is a movie, it's three and a half hours, but I don't know about you guys. I didn't check my watch once during this. I was really feeling the emotion of this. I didn't think it dragged at any point. Matt, we talked when we did Oppenheimer that Oppenheimer didn't really feel like it dragged. Did you feel like it dragged it out at all during this movie?
4: Not to the severity that I was apprehensive about, but I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't checking my watch
3: just because
4: I wanted to know
2: where I was at. It's so made you all have watches. But anyway, that's yeah, story. I have an Apple yeah, Watch.
4: And Adam, I don't have an Apple Watch, so don't yell at me. Yeah. Well, I was also by myself, so
2: I could have done whatever the f I yeah. I wanted without consequence. <laughs> what about you, Mike? Did you feel the
3: length at
1: all? You know,
2: this is kind of interesting. Scorsese's movies, his recent movies, have been quite long. The Irishman was three and a half hours. This is three and a half hours. Silence, I think, was like two and a half. I don't think it cracked at the three-hour mark. And then Wolf of Wall Street, it was some sort of mandate with the studio that contractually he had to bring it in. He had to bring it in under three hours, and it's two hours, 59 minutes. (laughs)
4: That's like the level of pettiness. When Paramount told Trey Parker and Matt Stone that the MPA, they'll give you an X if you put in more than 500 curse words, so they put in
2: 499 yeah, exactly. I've always said, Scorsese, he's sort of the new Trey Parker matchdown. <laughs> well, he's kind
4: as uh, as they are, especially when it comes to Marvel movies.
2: I've always defended the length of his recent movies in different ways. In uh, The Irishman, I think it's it has to be that long, because it's about the long journey of a life from youth into old age and death, and the slow descent of that, and how that has to feel and i'm like you can't tell that story in 90 minutes like it's if it, that one's got to be really long wolf of wall street i'm like that's a story about a guy he lives in excess it has to be an excessive length it's a movie about a guy who's given 50 chances to stop what he's doing and he keeps saying no it's got to be long funnily enough i oh, this is so hard for me to say i might think this movie's a little bit too long i don't know yeah, i know wow. i'm with you i'm with you i th- I feel weird taking that position because I feel like I'm usually on the other side. But at the same time, I don't know what I would cut or anything like that. This is the only time in in us doing the series that I haven't seen the movie multiple times. So it might be a situation where, with the way the narrative is constructed here, if I saw it a second time, I would understand why exactly each kind of element of it has to be there. At this particular point, I do think it's a little long. Yeah. Ooh, that's hard for me to say. But anyways, I don't think yeah, it's that, that big. Doesn't, deal. It, doesn't it feel wrong
4: saying that? Because honestly, it's why,
3: yeah. Why am I the fucking one defending the length of this? Yeah, movie? And that doesn't make any Up sense.
4: It's weird where it's like I could have watched another hour plus of Gangs of New York because I felt like that was kind of done a disservice with.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, how that
4: was produced. Where here I'm like, if this was like a five hour, I don't know. Pick your streaming service. I'm like, not doing it. I'm not right. doing any more miniseries. No. I would make an exception for this. I don't know if there's a way to trim this to a three-hour length, but I'm curious when I watch this again. Cause, and I will also say, unlike The Irishman, which I felt like I would have gotten just as good of an experience watching it at home, I feel like I was done better seeing this in the theater.
1: Uh, well, this is and a I feel like if I, was, sure.
4: if I was home, I would have more impetus to, you know, get up, check my watch, go to the bathroom. But being in the theater where... You, you really don't want to miss anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Even something as lengthy as this, I think, is more advantageous.
2: And there's no escape you're there with these characters in this kind of situation. I mean that in a positive way.
4: It's very rare where I watch a movie to where I know it's going to be that long and I am checking my watch.
2: So we talked about the poisoning and we talked about what's going on with that situation. It's also around this time that uh, there's a character named Henry Rohn, who's played by an actor named William Ballew. The word that they used at the time in the 20s was a he's a melancholic. The melancholic Osage. Hale takes out a life insurance policy on him. He gets killed off as well, and they fuck it up, too, because it's the whole thing with they... Yep. So the thing was he
4: was supposed to... And for the record, they also reveal he was Molly's first husband. Yes, right, yes. Which I love how that's handled. It's not a dun-dun-dun type of reveal, but it makes sense why Hale would conceal that. So the plan was supposed to be he gets him drunk, and he as blatant as he said, make it look like an accident. Shoot him directly in the head, but instead he shoots him from behind. It's to leave the gun, take the cannoli, when it should not have been there.
2: That. Mm, right, that's right, yes. That ends with a really great scene of Hale and Ernest's uh, brother Byron chastising Ernest in a, I think it's the, It's like the Masonic Temple. Yeah, the um, Masonic Lodge. And they, yeah.
4: paddle, they, they paddle him. It's like fucking Animal House. They you. so right. have another...
2: But that's—it's the casualness of it. It's like these places are like—I'm you know, yeah. from Kentucky, and I, you know, I grew up in a small town and stuff like that. These places like do exist. I don't think there's a lot that goes on in them these days. But you know, my great grandfather—I want to say on my on my mom's side down in Alabama—he was a, he was a member of Mason's Lodge. I don't know if he was getting up to this kind of stuff. There's these societies that existed, these private kind of societies, and so many of Scorsese's movies are about to be closed off. Cultures, you know, these kind of insular societies where like outsiders are not allowed and inside like anything can happen. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Is this really a punishment? I am going to ask that question again, Um, because this really doesn't feel like it hurts. Well, let me say this. I was in a fraternity in college
4: and I was never paddled because it's been predominantly outlawed in college Greek life because of the attributes to hazing. And, you know, it could be perceived as abuse, you know, which I support that. But this is basically the part in The Departed where Jack Nicholson hits him with the boot on his casted
2: arm. I got more pain out of that than I did this. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think this is more, I think it does hurt, but I think it's more, you know, when you were a kid, if you got in trouble, your parents would tell you like, you're in trouble, and like sometimes there'd be actual punishment that would come with that, but sometimes just them telling you you're in trouble would be scary enough, you know what I mean? To like make you be like, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. That's I think basically what is happening here with Ernest and Hale. It's just the idea of, you fucked up, and I'm the fucking daddy, like, I'm the fucking person who's in charge here, and you screwed up. I told you to do something, you didn't obey me, and now you have to deal with that, and it scares DiCaprio into compliance. He's already deep into it, but now he's, like, shamed him into full agreement.
1: Yeah,
4: it's more of a psychological play than it is physiological. You're dealing with a guy who's got an ego complex and likes control. You got a guy who calls himself King, and kings were known for ordering heinous shit on their suspects or subjects. It, I think it's more of a, a power play and ego stroking than the sadistic joy out of hitting someone in the ass. That's the way I took it, too.
2: It's around this time also that I think uh, one of the maybe most brutal, I don't know, it's, it's not a competition, and if it was, the competition would be fierce, but one of the most brutal things in the movie happens, which is there's a, a scene, and there's that great moment where they're driving back into the neighborhood, and all these houses have light, and Ernest is like, what's going on with the light? And they explain this whole thing where now the... People are on guard. People are know what's happening. This is what I talked about earlier. With earlier on, like there is a sense of community. It's a lie. We know that it's. We know that it's. It's not going to last. But we almost delude ourselves into thinking that it will. And now it's a war. And there's an explosion. And Molly's last sister, Rita, and her husband get blown up. Uh, their house is, is destroyed in an explosion. A bomb that was placed there by one of the members of the conspiracy. Jarring, yeah. jarring
3: explosions.
2: It's, it's rough. I don't think this is. DiCaprio's best performance. I, I definitely don't think that. I, I do like him in it, though. But I think the scene where he realizes what's, happen although he also should have realized it sooner like it's that's, that's again yeah. that's the thing with the character but like when he's looking at the the aftermath of it and the explosion and everything i think it's such a great moment for dicaprio this moment of like this guy's realization but also not like he know he it's so again it's hard to talk about but it's like he should know but watching it up front is different for him and this is around the time he's poisoning his wife and there's that great scene I don't know if it's at this point or if it's a little bit later. There's that part where he's there in the bedroom and he's giving his wife the insulin and she's unconscious and it's poison. And he takes some of the poison and he drinks it himself. Not trying to kill himself, but it's self-destructive.
3: Very much so. Yeah, this is a very troubled, very easily manipulated, yet so deeply concerned character. That again, it just makes you wonder: where's his head really at when it comes to all this?
2: And the the, the way that it's set during a part, King Hale is he's he's burning some of his crops for the insurance money or something like yeah, that. Yeah, because he he took out like a fire insurance policy or something. Yeah, so it's done in this great Scorsese expressionistic kind of way where the flames are all around the house and you can see them from the window and this red hellish light is coming in and it's like Molly and Ernest are both in hell. They're in hell. They're in a situation and for one of them, they're making the hell. You know, one of them is, is putting them in this situation. And it's the external pain, physical and mental and emotional and spiritual just put into the visuals of it and it's such a great kind of almost nightmarish kind of uh, visual sequence i'm getting chills just talking about it
3: yeah it's a it's a chilling chilling scene and you're absolutely right mike i I don't think any of that is unintentional too i think that was all put in with full intention of what exactly you are describing
2: and at a certain point now that molly all of her family's dead her three sisters are dead and her mother's dead she's the only person who has the full rights the head rights of the oil and everything and it's at around this point, while she's sickly, and on the verge of death, she summons up the strength emotionally and physically to go to Washington, D.C. And there's that great moment where she goes and she pleads with President Coolidge and is like, we're dying here. We've been killed off. We need help. And he's like, thank you, and walks off. And that's it. And You don't even see his face. Yeah. And it's such a great moment of the complacency of power, you know, the arrogance of power. Mm-hmm. Again, I was thinking of Oppenheimer with that Truman scene. Yeah, not a, not a good year to be an American president if you want your reputation to be on no. Film. Yeah, especially um, during the, especially during this era. Yeah, but because the Osage offer a bit, like, what they say, like a twenty thousand dollar reward, which is a hell of a lot of money back then, and because some white people actually got killed, they sent a few Bureau of Investigation agents, including Jesse Plemons, mentioned earlier, to try and figure out the scenario. And it's I saw somebody talk about this movie, and they they were talking about how they were like, I don't know how this could have been a police procedural or mystery in the first place, because as soon as Agent White, that's the Jesse Plymouth character, shows up, it's <laughs> he, he knows what's going on. Like, he figures it out pretty quickly, because it's very obvious. They're really not trying to hide it, even, because they just think that the power yeah. structure is going to protect them, and it basically does. I mean, you know, there, there will be some consequences, but they don't get the full brunt of it by any means. So there's that fantastic scene of De Niro at the barber shop being interrogated and he's all oh shucks and smiling and telling jokes and he's talking about oh it's it's such a terrible thing that's happened to the community it's such a great performance by the way we talked about it earlier but he gets several great moments in this back half of the movie in particular and to act with those fucking 1920s driving goggles on in several scenes (laughs) is really a challenge I have to imagine there's also uh, I was thinking
4: of it, it very much echoes the scene in Wolf of Wall Street when he invites Kyle Chandler on the boat Good call. Where it's excellent. like I am, I am hiding in plain sight, and there's nothing you can do about it.
1: Yeah, but he doesn't
4: realize that. Oh, I'm gonna get caught eventually because, much like Wolf of Wall Street and in a lot of movies, they get sloppy.
2: Yeah, and this is around the time. There's another amazing scene with between DiCaprio and De Niro when he basically convinces him to sign a life insurance policy. Is that what it is? I'm trying to remember the exact. It was supposed to be if he died. Uh, if he
4: died. I think it was that the money would go to him, not his kids. Like, yeah, right. It was, when it
2: was Uncle. Right. And it's such a great scene of both the sort of satanic charm of the De Niro character, but also, yeah, he is get, kind of getting sloppy a little bit. There's that hilarious part where he's like, I'm trying to remember the exact part of it, but he's, he's trying to tell Ernest's brother to be like, you, you tell him you signed the paper too. And the guy's like, uh... I. Yeah, sure. Like he's like, I didn't sign it, but you know, I would have signed. It. Or you know, because he knows the plot. But it's so funny. There's some yeah. really great dark humor in this section of the movie.
3: Yeah, I think the humor in this is very nicely distributed. And I've heard Scorsese say in interviews. In fact, it might have been that can where he said, "This isn't a who done it. It's a who didn't do it." And I think this is right where when De Niro starts getting sloppy, as you guys mentioned, we're starting to really see the seeds kind of bloom here. You know, I don't want to
2: get political or whatever, but, although, whatever, who cares? There's a little moment in that scene that we're talking about. We're trying to get him to sign over life insurance policy where the De Niro character's like, I've, I've got the best lawyers. You don't have to worry about a thing. They're the best. And I yeah. think we all know who De Niro might have been thinking of when he was talking about rich yep. white men who like to brag about how they have the best employees and best lawyers somehow managed to keep convincing people to do illegal shit for them despite the fact that he completely leaves them out to dry. I wonder who that was about. It's at this time that the arrests start happening. Ernest is arrested and he's brought in by White. They're interrogating him. They're interrogating a couple other people that are involved. There's a lot of people that we haven't named. I mean, it's a big, it's a big movie. It's there. It's, it's a big, it's a big conspiracy. There's a lot of people who are complicit in it. And you know, basically, they, the BI, because they're not F yet. The B.I. Uh, are, you know, convincing the people to turn against each other and to realize it's kind of like the ending of Goodfellas, but with the, more than just one person doing it. Hey, they'll, they'll fucking kill you. These people will not. The, yeah. the people who are you're your in with don't fucking give a shit about you. They're going to kill you. So why don't you fucking strike out at them and get some protection first? And there's that great part where the guy's like, get your pencils out. I don't know who that guy was, but he was a good actor. Blackie. Oh, well, Blackie was the, no, Black, I'm sure there, there's so many people in this. Blackie was the guy who was already there. Yes. Cause I think he was the one that killed Henry. Yes. He's the one who's kinda like even dumber than Ernest, it seems Cause like.
1: Cause there's the
4: other guy that works with the moonshine guy. I think there's Ramsey, John Ramsey. Yes. He's sort of the one that gets caught. They go to his house and arrest him in front of his family. Yes, right. Uh, it's sort of, I'm not gonna say it's a problem. But there are instances in my recollection where I find it hard to kind of distinguish between a couple of the characters.
2: I didn't have that issue with the characters when they were on screen, but there were definitely a few times when characters would discuss other people when they were not on screen. And I'd, I'd have to try and remember which one's Ramsey, which one is flacky, yeah. which
3: one's Grammar. I want that chart on like, the FBI list, that chain of who killed who. Like what people got when they saw David Lynch's Dune where they had the cards that showed what every oh, character was Or and like Game of Thrones with all the different houses. Yeah. yeah. You know what? And I think a lot of these reasons, boys, is exactly why I think this movie benefits from multiple viewings. Where yep. I was the same way as you guys. I could not get a lot of these characters straight. And I wanted to go see it again. Unfortunately, I, I did not get a chance to
2: Yeah, I agree completely. I, I intend to see it again, and I got a lot of people in my life that I need to see it with. <laughs> see this three hour and a half hour movie with, but that's another story. So he initially decides that he's going to testify against his uncle, but then in his first court appearance, there's a big dramatic exclamation. And this is one of the divisive performances I mentioned earlier. Brendan Fraser shows up for a few scenes as De Niro's uh, attorney. And John Lithgow. Um,
4: I had no idea either of them were in this movie.
3: Yeah, I didn't either. John Lithgow I loved. Brendan Fraser, really? This guy's renaissance. I get it. I respect his performance in The Whale as much as I don't like that movie as much as anybody oh, God, I but we, I, I'm not a big fan of that movie either but I do respect what he did with it this performance here does not belong in this fucking movie when he spoke the whole theater Crackled. Of course, there's only a dozen people in there, but still, all of them laughed. I did not like what Brendan Fraser does in this movie. As much as people have been criticizing DiCaprio left and right, was it good, was it not good, I don't think there's any debate here. Fraser's terrible in this movie.
2: I wouldn't go as far as that. I don't think he's very good, though. Because I think he is kind of meant to be funny. Because essentially, like the first thing that happens is, as soon as DiCaprio steps into the courtroom, this nineteen twenties Southern lawyer stands up and is like, "Your Honor, I do declare." So, it's like, oh I think it's God. meant to be kind of comical. I still don't think he does it well, though. Yeah. And I and this same year, to mention Oppenheimer again, I think Jason Clark in Oppenheimer is the good version of this kind of performance. I look at that's that an performance and I'm like, person. "That's what that's what it should have been." Yeah,
3: that's a good. That's a good point.
4: You know, I can't believe. That me, as a lover of cartoons, that I would have bad things to say about Foghorn Leghorn in a movie. I swear to God, I heard, I say, I say, boy. Like, like, that's how bad I thought he was. It took me out of the movie instantly. A, because it's Brendan Fraser. And B, uh, that accent is, like I said, it's, terrible. it's
2: Foghorn Leghorn. Yeah, that's a great comparison. I'll be honest; I barely remember him doing an accent. It was distracting that he's in it. It's one of those things where it's like Scorsese will do that—have a big actor pop up for one scene—and I think usually he knows how to utilize that very well. I mean, McConaughey is only in like two scenes. Well, comparison. Willem Dafoe in The Aviator. Harvey Keitel is only in one scene, really, in the Irish. Like there's other, like there's other examples. So I think usually he does know how to deploy that. I don't think it works here. It's not that big of a deal. It's like he's, been, he's it's, it's two scenes, you know what I mean? So I don't want to get too hung on it. But it is one of the more divisive aspects of the movie. So I did want to uh, address it, which is weird because in the same movie, Lithgow is in it. And Lithgow is a guy who can play to the Raptors with the best of them. Okay. Uh, and mm-hmm. he's, not, he's not doing that here.
4: He's good here. Yeah, he's real good. When it becomes a courtroom drama for the last 30 minutes, this is where I really felt the Goodfellas influence more than anything else. Because it's that same thing, technically a rat, you know, can you identify him? I know this is historical, but this part's kind of, it's almost inescapable to fully step out of the shadow of Goodfellas for these parts. And and also the
2: swap out Brendan Fraser for John Goodman, and I think this would have worked a hell of a lot better. Oh, I like that. Well, and so this is part of the, it's a whole thing where he was gonna testify, but then Brendan Fraser, as the lawyer, interrupts the trial and says like, I, you can't make him testify, I'm his lawyer too! And it's this whole thing where it's a corrupt system and they have this really great composed scene, and comp- I mean like shot composition scene where uh, they take the DiCaprio character into the fold, and they're, like, trying to convince him, like, don't testify against your uncle. Figure out what's good for you. We can keep the money flowing if you just do what you're told and stuff like that, and it's this great shot where you get that sense of conformity, and you get that sense of be part of the white community. Be with us on this one. And I think one of the guys from the jury is in the scene, if I I could be wrong, I mean, there's a lot of guys who kind of (laughs) look like the same type of dude in this, but uh, that's just because they're that kind of guy, you know, that kind of good old boy type guy. But if the establishment is telling DiCaprio, if you say that they tortured you to get that confession, then, you know, you can recant your testimony against your uncle, and then everything can go okay. And he agrees at first. He pulls the Ronnie Dobbs. He says, y'all are brutalizing me. That's a specific reference. And so he...
4: (laughs) (laughs) And also, I turned into Max Cady in the theater laughing when Brendan Fraser yelled, dumb boy. Yeah. Uh, Oh, my God. Like, all I I need was a cigar, and I would have just reenacted that scene from Gate Fear.
3: Why would Scorsese put this in? It just makes no sense why he would shoot this take and then keep it and not ask him to do it again. It is weird. I don't
2: know what that's about because I don't Mm. think he's good. I understand. There's also been some defenders, people who are like, no, it's supposed to be he's a comedic. Type of character, which is true, but there's other people in the movie who kind of fit that description and don't stick yeah. out like a sore thumb. So, larger than life does not automatically necessitate comedic, right? <laughs> Especially when this movie has so many great character actors. Like Gene Jones yep. plays one of the he's a, if anyone knows him, he's the gas station guy in uh, No Country for Old Men. He's one of the old white dudes in town, and he's yeah. He's, he's like, her,
4: um he's Molly's like insurer, right? Or like, some,
2: like I don't London, yeah
4: because
2: she keeps going to him to ask for money. Right. I, I think he might be from the Indian agency or something, or, you know, whatever it was called at the time. I don't know what, exactly what, he's some sort of functionary. And then there's that scene where he shows up with the Ku Klux Klan, he's like marching in a parade, and it's just so casual, it's like he might as well be with the fucking Shriners or something like that. It's that casually treated. A great look at the banality of sort of evil and white supremacy. And so, he says, well, I'm okay, I'm, I recant my testimony, I'm not going to do it, but it's at this point in the film that really sad scene. uh one of the Burkhardt's uh, Ernest and Molly, one of their children dies. The youngest child who they had to send away because she was sickly has died. Ernest gets the news of that while he's in jail from the Jesse Plemons character from Agent White and Hale is trying to comfort him, trying to be the mournful uncle figure and everything and it's this really kind of hard to watch scene. I mean you watch this guy. So hard. As terrible as he is and stuff like that. I mean first mm-hmm. of all it's, it's a Small child who's died. So it's 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 awful on I mean, just from the start. And then Di- DiCaprio seems so pathetic in the scene and just pitiful in multiple senses of the word. Yeah. you feel bad for him, but also you're like, you fucking scumbag.
4: He's also <laughs> grown so much as an actor. This is so much more authentic. And that scene in Inception when his wife jumps out the window and he pretends to cry. I think this was actually very convincing. You see the insidiousness of Hale come out because he realizes, as he's using
3: Christian, like, oh, she's with the Lord. He's like, I now
4: have the ultimate trump card for him
3: that I can hang yeah. over him. Yeah. Yeah. And what's weird is these kids are treated just like the kids in Wolf of Wall Street. They're there, but they don't really play that big of a part. And then here we're feeling it. And it's not because of Ernest, it's because of the ignorance of what's going on around him. Yeah.
2: Here. And he decides that that's kind of the breaking point for him. He decides that he's gonna testify. And we see him in court. This is sort of the one of the climaxes of the movie. He is just asked by Lithgow and while he's testifying in court, just step by step, each part of the conspiracy, each person that he killed, each murder he was complicit in, each person he asked to kill somebody else, everything he goes through step by step and confesses in just very plain terms, and it's just a single unbroken shot of DiCaprio as he's sitting in the witness stand recounting what he did. Does he sound like he's so penitent that he is just overwhelmed? No. Does he sound like he's proud? No. He's just kind of matter of fact. He's kind of embarrassed. Is he embarrassed that he was caught? Yeah. Is he embarrassed that he did it? Kind of. Is he, does he feel guilty? Definitely a little bit. But is it enough? Not really. No. I think that that shot looking, I mean, literally looking white supremacy right in the face. Just the idea of just having him just lay it out, lay out the crimes one by one and just say them. And that's damnation enough. And it's not damnation enough, but it's enough for us to understand that damnation is required. He, Goes through all that, and then in one of the last moments of the entire film, it's him and Molly have been reunited. They rescued her earlier from her being poisoned, and she's recovering and everything. And she has a moment, a few scenes earlier, where I I probably should have mentioned it, but they have a moment, Molly and Ernest have a moment together, where they're reunited, and they're in this field of wheat. And it's this kind of Western, sort of romantic sort of image, the sun setting, it's magic hour. And it's kind of bizarre, because he's been trying to kill her. You know, he's kind of in denial of it, but he's been trying to kill her for, like, half the movie. And here they are, and they're embracing each other like we're in some kind of grand romance. And when I first saw that, or, I mean, I've only seen it once, but when I saw that scene at first, I was kind of like, whoa, hold on. Like, I didn't totally understand what... Scorsese was doing until what happens at the end. Because I was like, are we supposed to believe this? There is a reason why they're married, but this is not a love story.
3: No. No, and this is such a... We're talking about the final scene of them on the bed, right? Uh,
2: Yeah. Well, uh, well, there's that. There's some really good scenes in this fucking movie. Yeah. Yeah. At first they reunite, but then there's the actual moment where after he's testified in court and confessed to all these crimes that he's going to be convicted of or they're going to try and convict him of. And then they meet after the trial... They're talking, and she just asks him, point blank, what was it you were injecting me with? He just says insulin.
3: He is refusing to admit it, or he is that ignorant, and that is the tragedy behind this whole thing. All she wants is for him to authenticate it, and he cannot. Whether consciously, self-consciously, whether this is influenced by his uncle, he cannot authenticate what he is doing. And those eyes of Lily, Lily Glassstone's eyes are the crux of this movie Mm -hmm. and the thing that just makes this heart-wrenching. And this is another scene where Jen just broke down. It is devastating. She walks out on him. She walks out on him and that's the last we see of either of them. That's the last we see of either of them. And apparently she did go on to marry someone else. She did live a pretty good life. She had some more kids and things. And fortunately, she was able to escape the grasp of what was going on here. But, you know, what I love about this is Scorsese is not glamorizing the fact that the white man took this over. He is showing that these guys are complete assholes. And this whole story of gaslighting is giving these people the power that we have been told our whole lives that was taken away from these people. And, oh, just devastating.
2: And what happens next is really jarring, but in a good way. It's a really bold decision because there's this scene and she walks out on it. They they have this conversation and he lies to her and she walks out on him and she doesn't have a big dramatic speech. She doesn't say a word. She leaves. And then we immediately cut to a radio show being filmed. (laughs) And it's so it's such an abrupt change and they're doing the sound effects that they would do on like old radio there's an audience there that are clapping it's sponsored by lucky strike cigarettes it's a radio show that's tales of the fbi or something like that or whatever and they're telling what happens after the events of the movie and it's happening so quickly and it's characters that are not characters. They're fucking radio actors. And they tell you what happens rather than doing the traditional kind of thing you might see in a movie like the white text on black screen Mm -hmm. type thing. And so, Ernest and Hale were both convicted. They received life sentences in prison. They did not serve life sentences. Ernest was eventually pardoned and Hale was let out of prison on health, or good, good behavior, that's what it was. And he retired to Arizona, and, like, was he as rich as he used to be? No, but he lived out his life, you know what I mean? And as a free man, and would you say, like, oh, if it weren't for that dumbass Ernest, we all would have been fine, or whatever. And Ernest lived in a trailer park with his brother for the rest of his life, and became an alcoholic. And Molly, as you mentioned, she divorced him, she remarried, she's buried alongside her family her sister all of her sisters her mother and everything her obituary doesn't have any reference to the murders and it's
3: scorsese himself, himself. yeah how do you feel about scorsese delivering this i have my own thoughts on it but why don't you guys give yours first
2: i think it's brilliant i think it's such a great touch because what it it's more than a touch you know, he's had cameos before but usually he just kind of sticks to a taxi driver's side he usually just kind of maybe he pops up in one scene or does a voice-only cameo or something like that this is a thing where he's kind of Breaking the fourth wall, in a way. Because it is not realistic. Because the timeline of it doesn't even make sense. Because they're summing up decades and decades of these people's history in a way that the radio the radio show would not have the perspective to be able to do. And when he comes out, he's not playing a character. He's Martin Scorsese. They give him kind of 1940s clothes a little bit, but kind of. I mean, only kind of. He just looks like Scorsese. Everybody in the audience knows he's Scorsese. And he is literally just breaking the fourth wall and telling us what happened. But he's also what he's doing is saying this is the white man's story that we're giving you. We can only give you a certain perspective. We can give you a you know kind of a, an enlightened kind of perspective that's empathetic and that has is a listening perspective and is able to shine a light on people like Molly and stuff like that. But this is the radio show. This is the Lucky Strike radio show. This movie, this is this Apple TV movie is the Lucky Strike radio show as good as it is. It is an inherently limited version of the story, which is why it has that amazing cut from the making of this radio dramatization to this Osage ceremony.
3: It's a bookend. I thought
2: this was absolutely brilliant
3: because the radio
2: aspect of it
3: is sort of a representation
4: of how Hollywood depicted violence against Native Americans. It was a reenactment, and oftentimes it was a footnote in a lot of stuff. With Scorsese, of all people, being the person to give the monologue that kind of closes the movie, he is saying that even though we're ending the movie, that they got caught and convicted to a degree, there's still an open-endedness to it because it still shows that, yeah, white supremacy ultimately won out and that the whole idea of white supremacy, that's something that everyone is sort of culpable to a certain degree and it's come at the cost of erasing what happened to the Native Americans from of a consciousness altogether. I know this is very powerful. I love that they use, if you notice, they use white voice actors, Jack White, of all people, and Larry Fezzenden, who is a filmmaker in his own right. They're very cartoonish and over the top, which is how Native Americans were caricatured. Uh, you know, Lone Ranger... You ever seen John Ford's Stagecoach? Revolutionary of a movie as that is. Not a flattering depiction at all. And the audience, they're eating it up. For mm-hmm. them, it is entertainment, it's a distraction. But then Marty is the one who comes in stone cold, harsh reality. This is what happened. I depicted it to the best of my ability, but there's so much more that is kind of off brand that we can't even relate to just based on our experiences.
3: Yeah. yeah, I think this
4: is absolutely brilliant.
3: Yeah, you guys kind of took my fire. I didn't think you were going to go that route, but I thought the exact same thing. I thought this was Martin Scorsese admitting his ignorance, saying, look, I told the story to the best of my abilities, but there's so much more that happened that I, I couldn't possibly tell you. I have heard this described as something of a commentary on true crime podcasts and oh, things wow. that were... I read that shit and I just laugh at it because that is not what Scorsese is doing here. He is admitting his ignorance. He is not saying he is telling the ultimate story of what exactly happened here. He's telling you to find out for yourself because there's no way I could do in three and a half hours what you could do in your own time.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's why that last shot of the ceremony happening is so so great. But also, it's it's a bird's eye shot. It's from a distance. Because he's acknowledging his it. own distance from it. I can mm-hmm. show you this to an extent. There's a limitation to what I can show. It's happening there without me. But, I, you know, I can film it. But it's still, it's happening without my perspective, my input. Such a great ending.
3: It's a perfect bookend to the, how the film began. Yeah.
2: And that Killers of the Moon. All right, fellas, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give Killers of the Moon? Let's, uh, let's start with you, Matt. I think the sign of a great filmmaker in any era, is
4: whether or not they can still surprise you, even if you're a a fan or detractor. And yeah, I'm as big a Scorsese fan as you'll find, but I'm still impressed that the guy as seasoned as he is, with as many films in his catalog as he has, is still finding ways to not only keep himself relevant, but still consequential to the landscape of American cinema. I do believe this movie is, I think it's an important piece, certainly of this year. I would even argue it was necessary. And I was surprised that he was the one to tell this story, but I never felt this came off as purposefully ignorant in that sense or me having that fear of the white savior approach, which is just inherent when you have a filmmaker who is not of the race or creed of the subject matter. But like I said, he's 80 years old, but still his eye for compositions and with how he frames his scenes and more importantly how he tells a story. You have seen elements of this before, a lot of them in previous movies he's done, as we've mentioned numerous times. Some of them I think are very obvious. I think they're purposeful parallels to stuff he's done because he's commentating that certain ideas and certain... I guess, negative aspects of humanity, those permeate throughout any era. And because of that, I think that's why his movies have had the staying power throughout the decades. There's something about his themes that are universal and transcend time. For the sixth collaboration with Artists from Titanic and his tenth, I believe, collaboration with Robert De Niro, it still feels fresh for them, which is also impressive. So I've I've given this movie a lot of praise but I do have to say, for something that is three and a half hours, I did feel it. Not just because I hit 30 and I feel like my back is starting to go, but because it is an experience. And I do believe you have to watch this movie with the understanding that it is going to challenge you. It is going to give you something to think about as you leave the theater. Which, again, I think is a hallmark of a great movie and of a great director. So I'm going to give this a very enthusiastic eight on ten.
3: Get it. Oh, you know, as somebody who, if he had the choice, would rather put on Cape Fear than Goodfellas when it comes to Martin Scorsese, I did not come in here with the most positive outlook. That being said, as I went to this movie with my beautiful bride-to-be, and she was just transfixed to the screen, and I found myself just sucked into a story that, again, I had no idea of what I was getting into. I knew I was watching a master at work, which is something I cannot say about any of the movies that we have reviewed on this podcast. There have been moments that I have enjoyed in all of the movies that we have reviewed, except for The Aviator. Um <laughs> There have been moments that I enjoyed. I think out of the ones we reviewed before, I would probably watch *Games of New York again. Maybe The Departed... Maybe Shutter Island, that's about it. This is a movie, and I'm so pissed off at myself that I found a way to watch the Exorcist theatrical film that me and Matt reviewed twice, but I could not get out of my way to watch this another time. I think this is a movie that deserves multiple viewings, as I've said multiple times on this podcast. Yet, this is not a really fun watch. It is a contemplative journey into the heart of evil. This is a movie about gaslighting. This is a movie about two wonderful people, performances maybe three I'll put De Niro in there too I think DiCaprio gives amongst the best of his career I think Lily Glassstone I think this is just a performance that will keep her on top for a long time if this is indeed and he has made noise that this might be his last film if this is his swan song it is a great swan song that being said I cannot give a movie that has that those Brendan Fraser scenes in it 10 out of 10. I just can't do it. I contemplated it. I really did contemplate giving this my fourth 10 out of 10 of the year, which is unheard of. Oh, I've been wow. given four 10 out of 10s and probably the last five years that me and Matt have been doing this podcast together. I have given quite a few this year because we've covered a lot of my favorite films and one that really, really surprised me, but I am going to give it a solid nine. I think this is a man on top of this game, even at 82 years old. I did not feel the length of this movie. I did not feel anything but hurt. And when I looked at my fiance and her eyes were just wet as can be, and she was just feeling the pain, I felt the pain with her, and I felt the pain with this movie. 9 out of 10 for uh, Killers of the Flower Moon for me. Ah, uh, so this
2: movie, over the course of talking about it, I think I'm going to bump it up in extra space from what I was going to give it initially. This is a really, really fucking good, smart, really brilliantly crafted movie. I've talked a lot. I'm recovering from a little bit of a sickness, and so I've been talking a lot tonight. I'll keep it brief. I'm also going to give it a 9 out of 10. I felt the length, I think, a little bit more than either of you did. For whatever reason, I'd like to rewatch it again to have a greater understanding and appreciation of it. I don't think I was as much of a fan of the DiCaprio performance as I think either of you are, although I do think he's very good at it. But this is, a, this is an incredible movie. The choices that Scorsese makes in telling it are often just brilliant. The ending's brilliant. The beginning is brilliant. There's so many great sequences. There's so many great performances. Just a master at work. And I, that's, I mean, it's a cliche to call him that, but it's fucking true. He's 80 years old, about to turn 81. He's a November birthday, Scorpio season. I hope we get another fucking 20 movies out of him. I know we're not going to, but I'd love to just, to just keep talking marty with you guys forever and keep watching his movies forever this is a fantastic film it's not quite my favorite of the year because uh, i think i liked Oppenheimer. you guys that's a story for another time and yeah so i'm gonna give this one a nine out of ten i think wolf of wall street it's a movie i've seen several times i think it's the only one of the ones so far that i've given a perfect 10 out of 10 to and in this particular series I think I one's got the better DiCaprio performance. This is a DiCaprio series as much as is a Scorsese series. But this is this is an excellent, excellent, excellent film. And I, I highly recommend everybody see it. It's a film worthy of consideration, of contemplation. Yeah, this is a great film.
4: So, if you recall, as Mike alluded to, he gave Wall Street a 10. Garrett almost gave this a 10, and I gave The Departed a 10. So how do we rank these six movies? So, number one is The Departed for me. Is it a perfect movie? No, but... I have not seen a whole lot of movies in my lifetime that I have just enjoyed in the 30 plus times I have watched it every single time. So that's my number one. Number two, I would go this. I honestly would. And I'm shocked that I'm uttering that given not the minimal expectations I had, but just the, the unknown. I, and I was really moved by it, which I, I think this is definitely the most, in my opinion, the most thought provoking of the six movies. Number three, I would go, uh, I would go Shutter Island number three. That movie appeals to a lot of my sensibilities, a lot of the claustrophobia, a lot of the tension, the mystery. I love movies like The Ninth Configuration, which it reminds me of, so I have a a real soft spot for Shutter Island. Number four, I would go Wolf of Wall Street. That is one that, as Mike alluded to, you know, it's about excess, but I could have done with one last line of cocaine. I do think that one did kind of wear on me a bit, just because it's such high energy. It's tough for me to get on that without my cocaine, which is caffeine number five this is where it gets kind of shaky i was i was going back and forth Wh- which one do i put above the other and i thought about it and i'm gonna go in new york number five and a lot of that tie-breaking component was day de day lewis i think that is one of the best performances of the 21st century and a lot of the a lot of the detail was a first for Scorsese, and I think he pulled it off. Uh, Number six, The Aviator. I don't hate the movie in the same way that Garrett does, but I I do think it is, of the six, it is the one that I had not the worst time watching, but it's the one that I could go the rest of my life without revisiting and feel like I'm not going to the grave with regret. I still gave it a good score, certainly in comparison to Garrett, but that's how I would rate these movies. Who wants
2: to go next? I can go next. I just wrote them down. Number one for me is Wolf of Wall Street, which I think is a modern 21st century masterpiece, boasting one of the great film performances of the 21st century. Number two, I'm going to go with Departed. I gave both Departed and Killers the Fire Moon 9 out of 10. The reason I'm putting Departed at 2 rather than Killers is just because I've seen it more times and I have a better, firmer understanding of, of its strengths and weaknesses. The three is... Killers, The Flower Moon, they're basically tied. I mean, I gave both of them 9 out of 10, but I'm just giving The Edge to Departed because I've seen it more often. Four is the Aviator, which I love way more than either of you guys. Five, Shutter Island, and then six is Gangs of New York, which I think is a major contender for Scorsese's weakest film, period. It's still really good because he's Martin Scorsese, or it's still good because he's Martin Scorsese, but uh yeah, so Wolf, Departed, Killers... Aviator, Shutter Island, Gangs
3: of New York. Well,
4: gee, I wonder what Garrett's number six is.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, number one and number six won't be that big of a surprise. Number one, I would say this. This was something that Again, this is a guy who was the master of excess, and that's what I was expecting with this. I was expecting him to handle this in a way that felt like good fellas in Oklahoma in the 1950s, 1920s, whenever this took place, and he didn't. He gave it authenticity, and there are a number of great, great performances in this that I just wrapped up my review with, and it's going to be something I want to watch again and again. Number two, I gave Gangs in New York. As bad as the romance in that movie was, and man, did we really have fun at that romance's expense. Poor Cameron Diaz. I still find Games in New York, and Matt, you hit it for me. The Daniel Day-Lewis performance and the DiCaprio, woe is me type of, I walked off the ship of Titanic and here I am in <laughs> a Martin Scorsese movie feel to it is what I really enjoyed about that film. And goddamn, the way Daniel Day-Lewis just moves around that film and interacts with everybody is just, what a master actor. Uh, number three, because of my ten- tendency to go towards horror. I went to Shutter Island. That is Martin Scorsese doing a horror film, a genre I wish he did more of. I think there were elements of that in Cape Fear as well. But this is a supernatural type feel. Well, we thought it was supernatural. And, you know, yes, the end does kind of take away its power. But that being said, I think DiCaprio is really good in that. I think it was a very well-crafted thriller that I still remember the theatrical experience of that movie to this day. Number four, man, it was a struggle to come up with number four. But I with the departed as number four. The Departed is the movie that got Scorsese the Oscars that people think he richly deserved. He's deserved them for years. It was the movie that kind of gave an F U to Dances with Wolves. It's like, look, I finally got my Oscar. Other than that, it's a police movie, it's a gangster movie, it's a showcase for Jack Nicholson, it's all of that. And it's actually a really fun, brisk watch. I enjoyed the departed more than Goodfellas, I, I would say. Number five was Wolf of Wall Street. I was not as high on that as Mike, obviously, or Matt. It's just a movie about excess and God, I can only take so much of that. I think if I were to watch that movie when I was 18, 20 years old, I might really, really enjoy it. (laughs) As Matt said, there's only so much fucking cocaine I can take. And no big surprise whatsoever. Number six, a movie I will never, ever, ever watch again, The Aviator. I've said my piece on it. Go back and listen to that podcast. But that is a movie that, my God, I just could not stand. That's my list. Now, guys, do you think Scorsese has another one in him? Mike, you're saying you wish he could do another twenty. Yeah. Do You think we can oh, he, get this team up again? I think unless he has like a sudden downturn in health, knock on wood. I, you know,
2: and he seems to be. I don't. I've never heard about him having any health troubles other than when he had the cocaine overdose forty years ago. I mean, he's he's one of those guys who's attached to a bunch of different things. Him and DiCaprio have uh, been a, they've optioned another David Gran book about uh called The Wager. Which is something to do with the uh, with ship mutiny in the eighteenth century or something like that. Kudos to the man for being eighty years old and being like, you know what I want to do? I want to make a movie about a fucking eighteenth century ship mutiny. That sounds like it. That would be a nightmare to film. Hey Leo, um, you want to get back on a boat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Jeez. So yeah, I, that seems like kind of weird territory for Scorsese, but also him doing a. Osage Western also seemed like weird territory for him and this turned out great so I'm sure we'll hear something from him he's one of those guys who there's some directors who again Ridley Scott's another person who uh, mentioned earlier who like juggle multiple movies will have one lined up to go as soon as they're doing another one you know what I mean Scorsese is one of those guys keep finishes a movie before he starts on the next one. And so we, I don't think we'll know what his next project for sure is until after the Oscar season. Because as serious of an artist as Scorsese is, he does do the, the song and dance every time of, he the, of the Oscars and everything. We'll find out in a few months what he's got. Cookin. hopefully he'll have a lot more ahead of him seems to be in good health he's younger than two directors we've mentioned in this podcast Ridley Scott and Clint Eastwood both of whom are still at kicking so
3: you know what I hope I hope he finishes that one you say that Taylor Swift has another concert movie come out the exact same time oh, God, I almost <laughs> did Taylor's in the flower moon
2: but it ended up not <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's, he's he's the Rocky
4: Balboa of directors where just when I think he's gonna hang up the gloves he, he comes back for one more fight when the time is right, I think he'll know to step away, or he'll be someone who makes movies until he's on his deathbed. difference between him and Ridley Scott is Mars Scorsese's movies don't suck within the last 20 years.
3: I don't know, man. That that preview for Napoleon was pretty good to I me. i got
4: to but... say, I saw the trailer, and it looks good, but with Ridley Scott, I'll believe it when I see it,
3: because
2: yeah, he's got guy. a better track record than that, although he can be hit and miss, but that's just the way he,
3: whatever. This is yeah, not definitely. the Scott
1: cast. Present. Yeah.
3: Yeah, not yet although there was a trailer at the beginning of this movie that you know the three of us we are going to get together for another retrospective in the near future but before then before the end of the year we have another one we're going to be doing together and holy shit can i not wait? It- People remember, back at the old place, the three of us got together and did the films of Michael Mann. Guess what? He has another one coming Woo! out at the end of this year. And holy shit, I gripped <laughs> Jen's arm so bad she had marks in it. The trailer was over. And I've done something with that trailer I have not done in years. I actually watched it about three or four times, and I am psyched as fuck for
4: We're it. We are revving so. up the fucking car, boys. Yeah, lock me in the back seat, because I'm not impressed. About I'm Christmas. still mad at Black Hat.
2: okay black hat's not good but this is a movie that doesn't start chris Hemsworth; it starts adam driver there's a big difference there
3: there you go mike you will be joining us once again by the end of the year we are going to be doing ferrari we're revving it up and there's another we're revving that up and there's another series that we have coming up i don't want to reveal just yet that'll be next year but i can't wait to do that one as well because that has a series of movies that you have not seen yet so a lot of good things coming up
2: well once again everyone thank you for joining us and i i do love that podcast sir
0: You're not one for tears, and, well, neither am I. So it's best to come out with it. Let's be honest. It's all been a grand adventure, but it couldn't possibly last. Thank you listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast exclusively on Percolated Media Well done Join us next week for an entirely new review
3: Which would be worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man
0: And if you would be so kind please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. I got this red, this annoying, cheating fucking red. The three men and a retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam and
2: Nathan don't tell me I can't do it don't tell me it can't be done
0: edited by Garrett
1: that's a sorry looking pelt
0: voiceovers by Adam This is Howard Hughes. Howard and I
3: were just discussing how he wants me to pull a camera out of my ass.
0: The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion and all clips, music and audio cues are used as such. Hunt the flesh, kill the flesh, eat the flesh, that's the uh, male sex all over.
1: of the future the way of the future the way of the future the way of the future
3: um mm-hmm. um uh, do you want to give him a countdown we'll get going here
4: yep so, so do I count down the full three and a half hours or yeah <laughs> alright three two one Killers of the flower moon. Mm -hmm.
3: I also have not said anything. No, you have not. You've been good about this.
4: Yeah, normally I'm I'm the one who tends to slip up, especially if it's a movie I have a very strong reaction to.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm debating whether to even do Marvel because all your thoughts about it are out there on your social media, by the way. People have thoughts on Marvel movies?
4: (laughs) Yeah, ask Martin Scorsese.
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, Mike, go ahead. Get into the plot, sir. Mm-hmm. I, I was just curious about that and whether it affected your line of thinking, Mike, because you did read the book, correct? I actually not read the book. Uh, I'm sorry if I gave that
2: impression oh, earlier. Because I, I, the thing is, oh. I wanted to wait till the movie came out, and then the movie pushed okay. back a year and a half. So, I,
3: <laughs> oh, okay.
2: That's yeah. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I wish I I read the Wikipedia page. Is relevant okay. Wikipedia pages if that's relevant. I'm sorry. I would have read it if I had. No, out. no, it's okay. Yeah. it's all right. Mm. Really bad. And I've seen some people say uh, there was one of the first reactions out of that. I think it was David Ehrlich, who's always the first guy to have a reaction to anything. That's not that's not shade. I'm just for the record. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it seems to be very quick with Twitter. He, he said that this is DiCaprio's best performance of his entire career.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And 30 years ago, he'd be played by Brad Dourif. And today, he'd be played by like, Scoot McNary. And
3: <laughs> this I pod- love
4: how he pulled. I love how he pulled Brad Dourif out of his ass. We and have
3: we talked, talked about Brad Dourif more Duriff in the past three recently. months. Yeah, we have p- talked more about Brad Dourif in the past three months than any podcast has in its history. Go and ahead. you didn't invite me. Whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, and this,
2: mm-hmm. he's smart enough for most of the movie until the end. Convince most people that his game is their game as well. And I think he stands in. Yeah. yeah. And I
3: think- yeah this this was one of the i'm sorry Mike. no no please this this was one of the castings i was scared of mm-hmm. and then the irishman came out and i don't have as much love for that as many people do i do like it and i did think that it was like okay robert de Niro's kind of back but here i really enjoyed the fact that i was scared of robert de niro again
1: yeah
3: matt how do you feel about this character in this movie i thought it was horrible <gasps> really? I'm kidding. No, I thought he was at oh, oh, God.
1: Shit. a horrible, God. A horrible
4: person. Um, much like Di- Much like DiCaprio.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: It's no secret that this boy's life. You know, this is a reteaming for the two of them thirty years later. And there was a scene in this movie that really took me back to this boy's life. It could have been a scene. Me too. Could have been a scene yeah. from that.
2: I've never seen this boy's life.
4: Oh man, I know I it's I
2: know I it's tough to watch. It's
4: tough to watch.
3: It's really tough.
4: But that's yeah, the movie it's, where it's like, oh, this Leo kid's gonna go somewhere.
3: Yeah, it was. It came out right before What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and that was right after Growing Pains, pretty much. And people were like, oh shit, this kid's actually really good. And Robert De Niro <laughs> plays the biggest bastard in that fucking movie. Like oh, you God. just hate him from the get go, almost over the top. So you know, I mean, he plays his abusive father, and it, it's. <laughs> I haven't seen it since it was out, but it did have a lasting impact. Yeah, it's one of those movies you'll watch it once and you'll never watch it again. you'll yeah, you also exactly. never
4: look at a jar of mustard the same way again. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea what you mean by that, and I, I'm now nah, I'm intrigued. Uh, I, but... I'm not saying that in the call me by your name type of way when it comes to abuse. <laughs> Don't, nor did I think that. So let's be clear. <laughs> uh, uh, but but yeah, like there, there's a like he just v- not just physical abuse, like. It is a verbal smackdown that he puts on DiCaprio, who was, like, 12 or 13 in that movie. So, so yeah, it was just so funny seeing them in this.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: And Anna is played by an actress named Kara Jade Myers, who I thought was really good. She's appeared in two movies before, one of which was Jersey Boys, <laughs> in the role of barroom dancer <laughs> uncredited. God, and- you imagine if Clint Eastwood
4: made this fucking movie?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that's its own story, but we get the family dynamics and everything, and the... mm
1: mm-hmm.
3: Here, I think Jesse Clemens does it very well. And I love, love, love the reference to J. Edgar Hoover because DiCaprio himself was J. Edgar yes. Hoover. It's a wonderful reference. God. Subtly done, but that's I got that, a smile that's so out of me. Eastwood is...
2: the fucking JFK line East, in Oppenheimer. Eastwood has taken strays this episode. We've, we've gone <laughs> after J. Edgar, Mystic River, yeah. and Jersey just him Boys, in general, It's yeah.
1: Jersey Boys. <laughs> mm. Um,
4: yeah. Because Jesse Plemons doesn't come in until at least the two-hour mark. But I like Jesse Plemons, but my favorite performance is his. I'm not saying this is an insult. I think he's... You ever seen Game Night? Oh, I love Game Night. Well, I love him in so... Game Night? I love him in Game
1: Night.
4: He is so funny in that movie. It's not even... It's it's hysterical. As the, creepy... As the creepy neighbor. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. How can that be profitable for Free L.A.? Yeah, exactly. But Buy one, get two free, how is that profitable?
2: Um, but, you know, I think he's also gotten past. Mm-hmm. It's not fucking, again, Mississippi Burning Again, where you would, if you watch that, you would believe that the FBI's top priority in 1964 was stopping racism, which is not the case. But, uh, I better say, speaking of racism? Jesus Christ. Um, but there's a part in this movie where, uh,. Mm-hmm.
4: He's like a Terrence Malick movie, except what's the word I'm looking for?
1: Good. Mm, I'm going <laughs> to pretend I didn't hear that, and uh, I will Are oh, going to have him on a Terrence
4: Malick retro, then?
3: If no, there's the no Terrence of, Malick, retrospective. I went the last.
4: <laughs> if you know the two of you were yelling at the aviator, Mike and I will be yelling at each other for six hours <laughs> on every one of his goddamn movies. Wow. <laughs>
2: Anyways, so on that note, we were taking shots at Easter earlier, and I was laughing and laughing. And now one goes at Malick, and I'm like, let's move on. So uh, <laughs> so now that her mother...
4: Mm-hmm. It's very rare where I watch a movie to where I know it's going to be that long, and I am checking my watch. The last one I really did that for was Once Upon a Diamond in Hollywood. I wanted to run out of that theater about 40 minutes in. Wait, really? Wow. Yeah, I talk about this, Garrett. In a couple of years, that—that was—I can't stand that movie.
2: Oh, wow. I'm just curious at this point, but we gotta—we gotta keep this in under three and a half hours ourselves. Yeah, we gotta we got hours, hours of this review to go. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I think it's more of a, a power play and ego stroking than the sadistic joy out of hitting someone in the ass.
3: That's the way I took it too. Oh, you take it, on, a the ass, it on the
4: ass? I remember everyone I'm the one who made that joke (laughs) I could have easily said something about myself but I don't believe in self degradation anymore I lost that on my honeymoon
1: Mm mhm
2: You know, I don't want to get political or whatever, but, although, whatever, who cares? There's a little moment in that scene that we're talking about, we're trying to get him to sign over life insurance policy, where the De Niro character's like, I've I've got the best lawyers. You don't have to worry about a thing. They're the best. I think we all know who De Niro might have been thinking of when he was talking about rich white men who like to brag about how they have the best employees and best lawyers somehow managed to keep convincing people to do illegal shit for them despite the fact that he completely leaves them out to dry. I wonder who that was about. I, Katulich, love, the I love the O.C.H. They're wonderful people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think Jason Clark and Oppenheimer is the good version of this kind of performance. I look at that's that performance and I'm person. like, that's what, that's what
3: it should have been. Yeah, that's good. a that's good point. Matt, what about you?
1: <laughs> um,
3: that that was my, sorry, that was my
4: monthly impression. Um, you know...
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, address it, which is weird because in the same movie, Lithgow is in it, and Lithgow is a guy who can play to the Raptors with the best of them. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. he's not—he's not doing that here.
3: He's good here. Yeah, he's real good. Yeah. He's always good.
2: True, yes, but he can be big though. Like you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like it can be.
3: Except in Raising Kane.
2: I love—I love Raising Cain oh,
4: oh, I still need to see that. But anyways, uh, um. Thank you so much. But but yeah, this is um.
3: Mm-hmm. And that kills the firemen. Boy, I feel like Thelma Schumacher. I'm going to be editing no, this. I was going to say, I'm going to be almost... this cut and then editing it forever. This is, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, about three when, years. in three years when this is
2: finished and it <laughs> we able to. But you have to release that one press photo of the the three of us sitting at the podcast <laughs> table together.
3: All right. Go ahead. Say on a scale of one to ten, what do you give this? And then pass it to somebody.
2: All right.
4: So, uh. hmm because he's commentating that certain ideas and certain, I guess, negative aspects of humanity those permeate throughout any era.
1: <sighs> Excuse
4: me.
2: And because of that,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, this is a great film. We're three di- we're three minutes away. Two minutes away. We're two minutes away from uh, two birthdays. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yes.
4: Well, on the east coast. All right. <laughs>
3: On the, oh, on the right, East yeah, Coast, yeah. yeah. Never mind. On the, oh, on the right, East Coast, yeah. yeah. yeah
2: never mind. Oh. We also have to um, come down fuck to Fuck you, Garrett. Tacks. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we also have to come down to brass tacks. <laughs> mm. But, uh, yeah, so Wolf, Departed, Killers, Aviator, Shutter Island, Gangs of New York. Have you seen Coon That's actually the one I have not seen, because I don't think it's streamable <laughs> anywhere.
4: For the record, I would watch Gangs of New York over Bringing Out the Dead.
2: Oh really? Oh well. <laughs> well, whatever. We're not going to get into that until we did the Nicholas Cage
1: podcast. <laughs> just just saying. Yeah. Just saying. All right. Yeah. Well,
2: gee, I wonder what Garrett's number six is.
4: <laughs>